0: Everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. During these strange times, we are all being forced to find a new normal, which means behavior modification on many fronts. Luckily, we have experts like Dr. Julie Slowiak, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Minnesota. A certified sports psychology coach, she blends her knowledge of human behavior analysis and habit forming to create the perfect conditions for improved performance. This theme translates seamlessly into the challenge of creating a productive environment to thrive in during our time of confinement. Here are tips on how to take control and modify your thinking and your performing. Here it is, episode
1: 356.
2: Power. Athlete.
3: Well, that's happening.
2: Echoes are all over the place. Right, John? John? John?
1: No. Oh, oh. oh. (laughs) oh, oh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time again. It's time for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. I have a question for you, McQuilkin.
3: Oh, is this a joke? It is
2: not. Every time I set up for this podcast, I turn this bobblehead to look at the camera. And I notice in the middle of the podcast, it is turned. Is it you or does this bobblehead of John Wellbornet have a mind of its own?
3: I didn't touch it. You sure? We'll check the tape on YouTube. Did you touch it? No.
2: Am I doing it?
3: Probably fiddling. Is this one of
2: those things where I'm in my own subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> like, you uh... need
3: more mindful walks.
2: Mm. Walk, (laughs) so you don't touch that, do you? I'm watching you next time. I think I've got it's.
3: It's just I have my Uh, computer.
2: Yeah, it'd be impossible to just do that. Yeah. Now I think what I've done is everyone's. You guys are gonna move that every single time. Uh Uh-uh. what you don't like hearing us drone on and on and on about the same stuff over and over again? We did it for 500 episodes with you. You have to do it for one, with us.
1: I'm just laughing at the at the bobblehead. One, how the toes are directly out. And then uh, <laughs> what I'm laughing at is something happened to where the head is like permanently altered back on the back doing of Doing the, the head. burning.
2: He's doing the burning. <laughs> so I did, when I created this for you, I said, you need to make sure those toes are out wide.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the hilarious part is it looks like Tom Cruise. This looks like banana hands. Uh, you think it looks like um, uh, yeah, Tony I Robbins? I
2: see Tony Robbins slash Tom Cruise.
1: Yeah, so Tony Robbins slash Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. So, so, hang uh, on. so, the... Uh...
2: but how, why don't we get another? Oh, yeah, so don't touch ball. Now you're all going to touch ball. Everyone's going to touch that and just do that. I know it. I already know it. I did it to myself. You just did Shame it. On you me. just
1: did it. You just moved it towards no, my did not,
2: t- Who did that? <laughs> I am absolutely shocked, ladies and gentlemen, as you may or may not know. Some of our loyal listeners may be tuning in at 6 a.m. or catching the YouTube post of Sipping Brew with the Crew, which is our new shtick that we're putting out every day. Have you, guys, have you guys
3: researched the word shtick yet? No, I can't even spell it.
2: S H T I C K. Mm-hmm. It's shtick, you know, to shtick something.
3: <laughs> you guys should, should look up what shtick means. I, I, I Well, that's part of the shtick, is we never will look it up,
1: and I, we just it, continue to exactly what it means. To have, like, a is it a comedic banter?
2: A gimmick, comic routine, style of performance, etc., associated with a particular person or thing. Uh, hmm. Kind of like Jer-
1: Jerry Seinfeld, like,
2: who are these people? What's the deal with, with the whole team? <laughs> the canister's round, the lid is round, I mean, I don't get it.
3: <laughs> you, know, you know what my favorite <laughs> shtick is? Dusty Crackers making fun of Jerry Seinfeld. I've never heard uh, of him. Oh, he's great. Ooh. And I'll tell you the another shtick that I like is when you go to acoustic shows, I request covers, so people to cover people's covers. Mm. And they would never like me. So that's uh, good. That's funny to me. I
1: liked uh, Dave Grohl was on, um, I think it was David Letterman, or maybe it was... Um, um, uh, I, I forgot he was on a show and they asked him about, you know, when they were on SNL and Christopher Walken was the guest. And so he comes over to him and he does this walk in where he's like, uh, hey, is the uh, uh, emphasis on fool of fighters? And uh, he, then like, they're laughing because they know Christopher Walken. They're like, it's on fighters. And he's like, <laughs> I knew it. And so he gets up there and he does this. Amazing Christopher Walken impression. he's like, and welcome, fool fighters. <laughs> and, uh, dude, it is, uh, like, I've watched it probably, like, 10 times. I just think Dave Grohl is hilarious. And, um, dude, his, like, he's like, we're a huge Christopher Walken fan. And he's like, the fact that we spoofed him. And he's like, I wonder if he knew, you know, because this is his shtick. Uh-huh. So I like it. Put the emphasis on the second vowel.
2: So my point leading into this is, when are we going to run out of shit to say? Like, how are we still breathing? This is the most amount of blabbing we've done with one another in a long, long time. What you
1: mean, this podcast?
2: Well, no, like the podcast plus five days a week of shtick.
1: (laughs) 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 You know, uh, I feel like Joe Rogan. I'll tell you, I've been on a lot. I've been on um, a fairly decent amount of other people's podcasts. OPP,
2: we call it. Yeah, OPP.
1: (laughs) You down with? I don't. But are you
2: down with OPP?
1: Other people's. Po- <laughs> other people's. Po- oh, that's yeah, funny. Did, get did you get it? Yeah. I mean, Maybe. his mind was in the gutter. He's thinking about pussy. My. What? I thought it was other people. My sense. penis. My humor senses yeah. were off. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, you would have to have them for them to actually be in or out or tuned out. Not just penis somebody penis. who's faking having a sense of humor. It shocks
2: me. The lyrics are about a feline.
1: <laughs> so I've been on several other podcasts, and I will tell you the one thing. That differentiates the premier podcast strength and strengthen. Something.
2: Condition. Uh-huh. What's, how's in. it ending? Damn!
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, is our ability to not only make sure that the guest is having a good time, but interact with them both on like just a relevant level. Like when we, you know, like uh, the podcast we're doing right now, uh, as she's talking, we're asking her questions that are actively bringing the conversation. What I despise is when I go on a podcast. And I know the person isn't necessarily paying attention or listening. All they do is they have like five or six set questions. And then they ask me one question that like doesn't necessarily play upon the next one. So then it's like um, like I was on a podcast recently and I'm pretty sure the dude was like either doing crossword puzzles because he was muted as I was talking because I could see him go to unmute. And then he asked me a question and then remuted it and like I'm thinking as I'm talking I'm thinking this dude isn't paying attention at all what I'm saying and he's not actively having a conversation what he's doing is he's just asking me questions and at that point I know that they're not paying attention so then I start making some crazy ass claims. So this
3: was a scene from Wayne's World 2 and I don't know if you recall I know exactly what you're talking about. They went on the radio station to promote their show (laughs) and then they're like going through their. and the guy's like oh that sounds great and they're like you're not even listening to us uh huh. So we can basically say whatever we want. Uh huh. And your monkeys fly out of your butt. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so and that's the that's what I think is really the, like uh what I the one thing I've really taken away from Joe Rogan's podcast is his ability to have a concurrent conversation. Like uh I'm sure he has a set amount of questions that he wants to answer. That totally go flying out the window once the conversation starts because as he gets into the flow, there's peaks and valleys and he's asking questions and there's back and forth. And I think that's something that we've done very well. When I'm on a podcast and people don't do that, um, they just feel like hacks. And I'm like, you guys are uh, no-talent ass clowns.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think uh, there, there's a bit of warming up that we do with certain guests. And I, I guess it would let's – let's relate it to dancing maybe. Let's say you're taking a dance lesson, and I'll, your instructor... I'm
1: going to give you a lot of leeway on this one.
2: Your instructor's going to take the lead, but eventually, like as a dude, eventually they hand over, and then you kind of, they don't lead anymore, and you're both kind of dancing. I'm thinking of me and Ashley were trying to learn the two-step for our wedding, which was, should be very easy, but Ashley is tempo and rhythm challenged but at, I guess what I saying so is, like, So
1: you would say that she's the Chris McQuilkin of dancing uh, in terms of like... Boogie, I can, I'll well, no, break. but I mean like if to, in sense of
3: humor. Oh. So uh, she is to dancing yeah, yeah, as, as Tex is to Are sense you of humor. I'm a better dancer than I am a comedian? Yes. That's a compliment. <laughs> Thanks, bro. I'll take it. Um... <laughs> but my point being is actor like, slash model you gotta lead you gotta lead you gotta lead and
2: eventually we get in a flow and yeah. we might even hand over lead to them yeah. right and I think that there's a, a very smooth transition when we when we re- realize a guest is comfortable and the ice is broken and then the next time that they come in it's like we might throw them a curveball or we might just do the same old thing give them the same old dance so uh, that's my sexy dance if you guys don't know
1: oh, I like yeah. you. there's a lot of hip I, shaking there but I can cut you up on that uh, there is, um, I think there's a really, uh, what I was resonating on is, um, I know you got hit up and you're going to do a blog on like, you know, like the, the five they, must have. have like components for the blog or, uh, for, for, for a podcast. And I think the one, uh, gold standard is when you can take it from like the, cause I mean, it, like I was, a, I've always been a big Larry King fan. I loved watching Larry King because he like brought people on and it was kind of an interview, but it wasn't, it was like an active conversation. And I always thought like it was so much more dynamic than like, so tell us about yourself. Okay. This, and like you, you have these preset questions and what it makes you look like is one that you don't have the ability to, you know, not only be uh, highly educated in numerous things or if the person is generally not interested in who you are. Whereas I think for us, like, I don't I, I can't think of anybody that's ever come on oh, that's not true. I can think of one person that's been on our podcast where I was like, eh, my bullshit meter went up and I'm like, I'm not buying into any of this. But for the most part, I think we find a very um organic, like very yes. well thought out um, I
3: remember that episode legit for the
1: 260.
3: <laughs> That's where Luke and I interviewed John. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, See, that's, that's timing. Funny. <laughs> that's funny. You should write that down. I, I the, fact that Luke, the fact that Luke recalled the one that where you guys interviewed me at 260 <laughs> is hilarious. That's called, that's called timing and humor. You can learn. Like much, like much like Todd Stewart's graduate thesis that if you watch Fletch enough, you'll actually learn how to be funny. I think uh, after maybe another twenty or thirty years, you might pick up timing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nailing it.
2: <laughs> I'm more of an improv guy, though. I can't put the set together. But if you guys want me to,
1: just cut it up. Yeah, I'll do. But, it. Uh, what's the deal with Oval Team? But think about like you—you um, you guys yeah, have no, been on. Uh, um, you guys have been on a fair decent amount of other people's podcasts, MVP. and you're and like <laughs> and you leave there and you're like, wow. One, I don't feel like I got to know the person on the other end at all. Mm -hmm. which is something that I always want the people that leave our podcast to actually
3: feel that they know us as individuals. Mm -hmm. So to to compliment Julie, she provided us fun resources, books and people to follow up. And
1: uh, takeaways, which, 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 you know, is my biggest deal. Like what can we action today? And uh, I just, it's rare that I'm on a podcast where somebody actually uh, connects or I leave knowing who this individual is and what they have done and their accomplishments and then can find that common ground. I mean, the three P at- or the three prong attack fits within that, not only creating a common bridge, teaching, you know, and, uh, you know, and then, you know,
3: going through sharing this journey, something. sharing something. Do you think Julie noticed our mustaches?
2: Our or our? <laughs> No one can see that, that piece. I, of it's butts. a blonde.
1: What's it's blonde. What's, care. what's really weird about that mustache, Tex, is your beard was pretty thick. Did you red. actually trim
3: a, the yeah, mustache? I, I
2: think he shortened it somehow.
3: No, 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 no. So here's, I got three colors of facial hair. Uh-huh. So I got a red beard, but then my Pez, my neck beard is dark, and then my mustache is blonde. huh well, I, I just want to know is why I don't
1: grow a beard. I want to know Doesn't why uh, how you guys got so much uh, like angle and style. Mine just looks like
3: a looks great. I, I, well, <laughs> angle and style. I was honestly thinking about Mr. Pat Ivy, Doctor Pat. Oh Ivey. God, God, damn it! That
1: mustache.
3: He's his great. his
1: mustache and his whole like whatever he had going, yeah. amazing. Yeah. He, like I wanted to know if he was wearing foundation. I was like, he's got on makeup. Look great how glow. his face was perfectly. I mean, that's like. Botox and foundation, amazing, incredible, incredible facial hair.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, perfectly, much like McQuilkin and I. Not you over there with that fern gully. On I don't know what the lip. fuck. <laughs>
3: uh, has well, your, has your wife
1: commented? Uh, no, my daughter's absolutely <laughs> despise it. Uh, like, dude, like Kelly came over and she's like, "What is that?" I'm like, uh, "It's a caterpillar climbed on like right underneath my nose and it's just hanging out there." And she's like. A caterpillar? And then Jamie comes over and she's like, where? <laughs> um, I, uh, I, dude, my new joke with them is uh, I call Jamie the uh, defender of bugs. Because, like, her, like, she feels that, like, bugs are people, like, through, could we discuss reincarnation? Mm-hmm. So she wonders if, like, the bugs are people. So bugs have feelings. Mm-hmm. And so uh, um, Jamie was out there, like, trying to, like, I don't know, save a grasshopper. And what, what happens? Cassie just comes over and stomps Stop. on it. Okay. And then she's like, that could have been our relative. And he's like, he probably peed on it, too. Yeah, right. But, uh, oh, yeah, no, it's, they came over, like, like, what is that growing on your hair? I'm like, you're going to go one, too. Mm-hmm. You're good, like probably in another week, you're gonna sprout one of these. So, oh, no. I
2: did. So, here's who I tagged everybody's in so far. Hepton Stahl, killer mustache.
1: Did you see his little oh, yeah, mustache? no, he he reminds me of uh, Bron- like a uh, really
2: skinny Bronson,
1: yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what he looks like.
2: And then, uh, Harry Shaw has a nice Mexican mustache thing going. McQuokin, you've got whatever you've got, John, myself, and then the last one's Callie. So, Callie, let's see that mustache. You grew it out that one time, and so,
1: Kyle, grow it out again. Uh, you know what? I'll just get, um, uh, I'll give Callie a break on the mustache if she lets the eyebrows get thick again. Satan's fingernails? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I remember she was going down to that lady that was doing, like, the, uh, the, what was it called? The threading. Like, mm-hmm. she, like, would thread those things up, and Callie came in, and those things came to, like, a perfect point. I'm like, are those the devil's fingernails?
3: Are, why are you always surprised? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Callie does
2: have. I have to applaud. Great, uh, I mean, uh, impeccable, fantastic.
1: Impe- but you know what? In this time, you know, seeing is that she's with child, and also this quarantine deal. I bet your eyebrows. Oh,
2: <laughs> Callie, let's see those eyebrows. Yeah, if post them up. See,
3: actually, you know what I'm going to do? I, don't do it, Callie, because they're going to Photoshop it onto your. Her lip. Well, <laughs> no. I already
2: have a picture of her without eyebrows. I <laughs> uh, have to install Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, well, we the,
1: all have no eyebrows, and it's very weird. So, what we should do is Photoshop like caterpillars mm. over Callie's eyes, like big, thick caterpillars.
2: What are we doing here?
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is not uh, the morning brew. The, oh, yeah. No, but the thing is, is, is like now, to tune is, to is because of the morning brew, I feel like we're warmed up.
2: I, I'm tired. I'm just, I don't know if I can do it.
1: Let's go. Um, Uh,
3: I can't talk anymore. Okay, so what do you think of me? (laughs) Well, John's put together some beautiful playlists for a third monkey training Mm -hmm. program.
2: That's right, people. So we are in interesting times. We don't want to necessarily belabor it, but there is a reality to the situation that is this shelter-in-place that seems to be going on for another few weeks in most areas and probably will be gently lifted, right? I don't think it's going to be a Band-Aid pulling off, John. Do you think they're going to just kind of slow peel? Um... I guess it's up to the
1: state, right? Here's I try not to buy into like the fear aspect of anything, right? But mm-hmm. like here's like here's my thought and um guys completely stop me if you think that I'm I'm dead ass wrong. Okay. Uh so at the beginning like at Stop. At, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it was at the end of last week they got up and they were talking about like hey, this is going to be the pivotal week and we're going to see this like death toll climb to like 100,000 people mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and like, so there was this idea that like, Hey, there's, um, you know, this number of people that are going to perish, uh, and we're doing this social distancing to flatten the curb and we're all in this together. I think what's going to happen is, um, in the near future, if and I know it sounds really grim, if like those num if that number is extremely exaggerated and it's like, A few thousand people pass away and not, and not the imagine like this, like, you know, we're going to lose a hundred thousand people a week and we're going to be half a million people inside of a month. If it's like a few thousand people, uh, you know, or 10 or, you know, like a, a number dramatically lower than what we see with like the flu. I wonder if people are going to be like, uh, fuck off, we're going back. And, um, you know, in the States that have mandated this, like, how do they go in and control it? So I was just, it's just this kind of interesting thing Mm -hmm. where, Uh, you know, and and this is another kind of uh, like issue that I can't necessarily wrap my head around. How can the government tell you that your business is essential versus non essential? If your business is required to put food on the table and help you survive, aren't all businesses essential? So like uh, the fact that the government and like, I was seeing like spiking unemployment and they're going through all these things. I'm like, it's artificially created by the government forcing people to not, or the state rather uh, not allowed to run their business. So when in this free democracy that we're allegedly living in, can the state come in and tell you, you are not allowed to run your business, you are not allowed to make money, do whatever that you were doing before, you have to stay at home. Uh, like it, to, to me, it's, and then decide who's essential and non-essential. There's just a lot of weird slippery slopes and things that don't make sense, and I think I think people are going to get pissed off, and if they don't hit, if it's not as dramatic as what they say, I wonder if people are going to be like, I'm a healthy individual. I'll take my chances. Fuck or off. I Let me get back to say, with my life.
2: Oh, we all did it. We did it. Thank you for your cooperation. Right? Like yeah. we couldn't have done it without you. That's what I would do. I mean, if I'm not the government, but I don't I would imagine there's certain like there's smart people in there that are prepared for that contingency. Because that certainly is like that's one of the highest risks, is like, okay, what if what if we over exaggerate it? But I think a lot of people agree, like, I don't know, man. I think a lot of people agree, like it in true pandemic scenario, probably overreacting is better than underreacting?
1: Well, last year from April to April, the H1N1, uh, 60 million Americans were, uh, uh, you know, came, contracted H1N1. Yeah. Of that, uh, 250,000 were hospitalized mm-hmm. and just under 13,000 passed away. And that was just within the last year. So.
2: And that's what's interesting too, where I think it could be, because like the Worldometer stuff is really, what I'm really impressed of is how they're like visualizing and gathering all this real-time data. Like, yeah. And I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but that's super interesting that they've managed
1: to do this globally. Oh, yeah. So that's it's well. How are they? How are they pulling like 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 Lights, as, wires? Well, I mean, uh, and what's the, what is the what is the
2: margin for error in these? Yeah, in the reporting. I, and it's so I look at it as directional. So whether the numbers are true and how they're collected, at least they're going to be consistent. So that curve represents something. So you can well, you can do a longitudinal analysis.
1: There's 400 uh, 400 people have passed in California. Mm-hmm. Right. So the the comment and I and the, maybe it's because California went to a shelter in place sooner. You could make that argument opposed from some other places. Mm-hmm. But the I did hear a pretty interesting conversation where an individual was like this uh, coronavirus has been here longer. And because of like, uh, you know, people from Asia, traveling California, the tight, uh, you know, tight. I think it's like. 2,700 people per square mile yeah, within and like these areas. And San yeah, San
2: Francisco, and those and are huge, huge, huge throughput hubs. Yes, for, and yeah. so
1: uh, mo- or a lot of the people that are out there have already been exposed and battled through this and therefore are, the you concert. know, yeah, like, so that's why the counts, whereas if you have places that maybe aren't as well densely packed or maybe don't have as access to, let's say, uh, places where it might be very prevalent, those are the places that are going to hit the hardest, Um, then the other one and, uh, Paul Carter afforded me the one that it was like 97 or 98% of the people that are really in serious battle already have at least one pre existing condition, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, there's like a lot of different pieces to this, but you know, like you have this like, Hey, like here's the general safety of, of, of individuals. Um, you know, but then you also have like the crashing of the economy. So like, it's this, I'm glad I don't have to make this decision. Sure. You know, and it's really easy to sit back and like I love how all these uh news outlets are Monday morning quarterbacking everything like i you know I don't know who uh, who would make a better decision in charge. I mean they were like you know Trump would you know dismiss this too um you know early on he dismissed it i'm like um okay, so it's the best info we got yeah I don't know I'm not like or a big- or, or maybe he wasn't willing to shut the uh, shut the country down you know unless
3: this thing was actually really a serious issue one of the coolest classes I took in Grad school was epidemiology. Mm-hmm. so we would cover different famous cases, and one of the cases was the great influenza, so the Spanish flu
2: yeah that and then was gnarly.
3: The, uh, I thought that it was, was not Spanish it was Kansas, yeah, farming Kansas, yeah. so I was so fascinated with it I found just an awesome novel that went through the whole that followed the thread, reverse engineered it mm-hmm. so basically the epidemiologist that tracked it throughout the world and then found this specific farm in which it originated from pig to man. Yeah. So uh, if you're looking for a book, listeners, we're get, we got some great book recommendations from our guest Julie today, but also one I read, and maybe I go back and, and uh, I won't read it this time. I'm probably going to listen to it, but mm-hmm. The Great Influenza, it's from 2005.
2: And what I think would be interesting, and again, like I'm trying, I say these things kind of operating just outside of the, I, I hope, I think, without like outside of the fear and the, the social constructs, like social components of this, I just would love to see comparatives of a lot of the data that's reported. Like here's five totally unrelated things that cause death, Com- like in compared to this time in this type of scenario that may have a similar pattern. Because like you said, let's say we were looking at the rate and spread in Contraction case of the Spanish flu or the flu of 1918, right? How are we ranking against that? Maybe it's worse. Maybe it's not. Like I think people mention automobile accidents, and I know they're not like to like like that's not the intent, but it's just partially kind of put a good piece on this out on last um, last week where it's like be aware of like the the boundaries. Like okay, so uh, uh, on the worldometer we say you know. 80,000 cases
1: what else like what are they only those cases
2: or oh. cases but what other and it doesn't even have to be illness or sickness like what else contracts at 80,000 like a, a well, rate of
1: 80,000 over well, 30 we don't years? have enough te- like, like here, here's another issue we don't have enough tests right uh, I mean like, there's
2: errors there's error and slippage so,
1: in so if we don't have unlimited testing how like like that's where it feels to me like uh, the only number you can really count is the amount of deaths mm-hmm because be, Because if, if somebody comes in and is sick and you don't have a test for them, then you're just basically making observations. How do we know it couldn't be something else? Mm-hmm. And then how do we know that that killed them and it wasn't some pre-existing condition? So the only number you can really look at is the fatalities issue. It's like drunk driving, right? How many people drunk drive? I don't know, but I'll tell you how many people die from drunk driving.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it would be something you'd have to take in, like you said, additional factors, right? Like let's say there's a huge spike in um, positive cases. Well was this also when a huge number of tests were deployed to a heavily populated area. 100%. Right. So there's certainly ways to causal out that data. And what we're going to see, I think, is going to be really interesting, is ultimately text like, the next, like, four or five years from now, once they, like, close the case on this and, like, causal out all these events, because you're right, the real-time tracking is flawed,
1: but it's directionally accurate. Well, this thing isn't going away. We're going to deal with this for the next... You know uh infinite amount of time I mean it's like it's like the influenza and all the other things that have have shown up like like people have been getting sick with influenza since you know you know in- ni- nineteen eighteen when the influenza deal popped so out at least so so I for a hundred years, so we're going to deal with this coronavirus it's it's not going to be called novel corona it's be a anymore Different different
2: playing field though John because because what makes it unique as far as I understand is the rate of that it can spread, so there is the proverbial bubble sure so. We're going to get past the bubble. So, yeah. But, like, will that particular strand be around forever? Yeah, probably. But that's not what really is dangerous. Sure. What's dangerous is the stress it puts on the infrastructure, the stress it puts on the medical staff, the danger it puts the medical staff in because of asymptomatic carriers who can then go in and infect a whole population at an exponential rate. That's what makes it dangerous. Not that you get it. It's just that we don't have the volume and capacity to
1: manage. Sure the high rapid growth. Well, then what they need is they need a vaccine or some antiviral. mm
2: -hmm. And that's the only way it really flattens that, that or like, like a way to determine if you're asymptomatic or a home test or immune or like, yeah, something like that where
1: I I don't know. I mean, dude, uh, if they were to issue home tests and then people could test and then, you know, based on the, the color of your cell phone, then you could say, Hey, I'm healthy and I'm not, or
2: you just realize that this is, there's a lot more time on this earth for most people. I don't know if that's a true statement. And like, this too shall pass. And you just lean into the storm, and you be smart, and stay strong, and stay healthy, and stay active. And like, man, there's going to be a tomorrow. Like, if I've learned anything from... The sun state will come up
1: tomorrow. You can... You'll always you get bottom through. You guys always win. Tomorrow.
2: Right? So, with that said, I think that could be a segue. Well...
3: No, this is a good one. Let's rock that it. That sounds like a great attitude and grounding technique, mm-hmm. which we'll cover in today's Power Athlete Radio.
2: Oh. 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 Our oh. guest today is... Uh, I want to pronounce her name right. Julie Slowiak, who is a professor Behavioral Science... Prof- um, professor? Be- psychology, psychologist? yes. Behavioral Psychology. Um, psychologist, professor at the University of Minnesota in Duluth. And man she's like i guess timely timely for us because a lot of the what we were talking about the changes socially require a change in behavior if you really want to maintain a high level of well-being what does that even mean what about self-care what are you doing do you even have a system in place if you don't have a system shame on you shame
1: shame shame, shame.
2: but you're going to learn some tools and tricks uh, you're going to get some tools, learn some tricks here with our guest, Julie. So enough about us, enough blabbing. I'm done talking to you guys. Like, I like you guys.
3: See you tomorrow at uh, 6 a.m.? God. See you tomorrow at 6 a.m.
1: One more time.
3: <laughs> Let's go. Go.
1: One more time.
2: Shenanigans. Ah, oh, legit. So, Julie, I guess, Julie, while we're talking about backgrounds, uh, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background on you? You know, I, yeah. I guess... How did you get into this area of study and expertise? And then maybe, you know, how we'll, we'll kind of bridge that gap. Obviously, if your husband is in that strength and conditioning space, uh, you know, in a little bit of research, I see you got a nice little garage gym set up and you're active yourself. So I think there's probably going to be an interesting blending here, right?
4: Yeah. So um, so my background, um, really, I did my got my undergraduate degree in psychology and communication kind of, you know, two very... Vast fields. Um, but I, at that time, um, really wanted to go into organizational and management consulting. And so I um, went to graduate school, got my master's degree in industrial organizational psychology um, at Western Michigan University, stayed there, and um, the program was very behavior analytic in its orientation. Um, so, familiar with B.F. Skinner? I am not. No. Okay. Well, you'll have to look him up during one of your breaks today. Got it. Um, so E.F. Skinner, um, you know, very well-known um, psychologist in the area of behavioral psychology. And, um, and so I stayed at Western Michigan, got my doctorate degree in applied behavior analysis. Um, and I have been um, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Minnesota Duluth since 2008. Um, And really over the course of time, so as I mentioned, kind of my initial um, interest was in organizational behavior management, working with organizations to improve workplace conditions, improve employee performance, work with leaders on developing leadership qualities, um, because a lot of individuals who end up in supervisory leadership positions, and this um, probably happens in coaching as well, uh, you know, they end up getting promoted into these leadership positions because they're good at what they do and they don't necessarily have the skill set to lead or manage individuals. So they get into those positions and it's really awkward. There are things that they're being asked to do that they're not used to doing and um, and they find that they don't necessarily have um, the proper skill set. So um, so I was primarily looking at um, things like how can we utilize feedback and goal setting to improve employee performance? Um, what types of um, training can we give to leaders and managers so that they can more effectively manage performance of their employees? And um, then I um, kind of hit a sweet spot in my academic career. Um, I was granted tenure and um, at that point, I wanted to figure out how I could blend more of my personal interest in health and fitness into my teaching, into my research, and uh, in the service that I do um, as part of my university position. And so, I really started looking more at workplace well-being, um, because it's one thing to manage employees well um, with with a focus just simply on productivity and performance, but looking at, um, you know, are the things that we're putting in place to manage employees having a negative impact on their personal and professional well-being? So, um, that's where I really started to dig into the literature on professional self-care, workplace well-being. Um, the various dimensions of well-being and um, how um, we can improve well-being on an individual level, but also on an organizational level. Um, And that is just kind of blended into a number of different things that I've done. Um, On the health and fitness side of things, um, I'm really interested in uh, working with individuals to make sustainable um, health behavior change Um, because I think a lot of times what happens is we see people are super motivated on the front end. Um, they might adhere to a new, um, nutrition or exercise regime for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden we start to see them kind of revert back to their old habits. Um, and so, um, I thought, well, you know, I have all this background in behavior analysis, which, um, you know, is a field in which, what we're trying to do no matter the application is we're identifying socially significant behaviors um, that, that need to be changed. And then we're kind of almost engineering the environment. So making changes to the physical environment, the social environment to support desired behavior. Um, so when you think about you know, how are you going to create um, an, or, an effective organizational culture or a team culture, you need to look at all the factors in that environment. Um, and, and, and think about how can you make tweaks to the environment to support the behaviors that you want to see in that environment? Um, I can keep rambling on, but maybe well, I should have you guys uh, we give, pop in there. Yeah. So when
2: you are the factors or the variables that you can evaluate and manipulate do, do those vary from office to office or organizational organization. What about like are there commonalities within industry, or is it just like its own unique fingerprint based off of corporate culture?
4: Um, it really is specific to the individual context. So there, you know, in, in general, we're gonna look at things like, um, you know, whoever is in the leadership position. So if it's in a traditional corporate culture, we're gonna look at, you know, the manager or the CEO um, and any kind of um, mid-level managers. Um, if it's in a sports organization, we're gonna be looking at the coach, the head coach and all the coaching staff. Um, and so we kind of identify the key players but then we need to look more specifically within that context, what are those individuals doing to um, support desired behavior in that context? Um, you know, and one of the um, current research projects that I'm working on is um, doing an assessment of um, perceptions of coaching behavior. So, this is um, directly with um, NCAA um, student athletes and their head coaches. Mm-hmm. And um, there are kind of four categories of um, behaviors within which um, we can kind of identify um, the qualities and behaviors of coaches um, who we would classify as high performers. Um, and, you know, like what are the coaching qualities of those individuals? and so um we we've collected the data we're in the we're going to start analyzing it very shortly um, but essentially we ha- you know gave a survey to coaches and then we also gave the same survey to student athletes and we're trying to look at the discrepancies between coaches um, perceptions of their own behavior and then their athletes perceptions of those same behaviors um, because usually there's a disconnect right so if i were to ask you to self-assess your own behavior and then ask you know, your roommate, your significant other to assess those same behaviors. Are we going to see that you know, those assessments line up with one another or are there some discrepancies? Um, and then we also took that a step further to ask the student athletes um, things related to athlete satisfaction you know, with the team um, itself, with their coaches. Um, we looked at a measure of mental toughness um, and we looked at a measure of psychological flexibility. Um, so kind of looking at at some of those well being related factors for the athletes to see how coach behavior might predict um the overall well being of their athletes
2: so is the is the hypothesis that the greater or the more significant the disconnect between the self assessment and the the athlete assessment um, the the more the well being could be affected or chemistry of the team, however you would qualify that?
4: Yeah, pot- potentially. So, um, you know, the larger the discrepancy, perhaps we see, um, you know, a greater um, uh, variation in perceptions of, of athlete satisfaction. Now, some of that is going to be individual because, um, you know, certainly um, I'm sure, you know, you may have, may have had the experience. Um, I can I'll equate it to a classroom. I can have 30 students in my classroom um you know 28 of them might love my teaching style two of them might really hate it um you know and so some of so there is going to be that uh, variation what we're really trying to see with this is um not not simply looking at the association between these variables and the level of discrepancy but looking at identifying what are those specific coach behaviors that are really important and predict mm. athlete satisfaction Um, so then once we kind of know which specific coach behaviors, then we can develop, um, you know, tools to do assessments of coach behavior and then design interventions where we can work with coaches. So it's like coaching the coaches on, um, you know, how to improve their behavior and and those very specific behaviors that we know are going to have a positive influence on their athletes. Um, so it might relate to the way that they give feedback or the type of feedback that they give.
3: I was going to ask, you said four qualities. Do you have an inkling of what those four top qualities are?
4: Yes. Um, So they're categorized. um, The four categories relate to developmental feedback. Um, So really kind of focusing on, um, you know, the skills, the different types of skills and skill acquisition techniques that coaches use uh, for their, for athlete um, skill development. Uh, motivational feedback. So here, you know, are they acknowledging and, uh, and recognizing their athletes for, you know, not only, um, high levels of performance, but the effort that they're putting in kind of just, you know, our general kind of recognition of, of desired behavior. Um, also looking at things such as, um, you know, how are they going about observing and, and, um, analyzing performance? So, um, are they out there, um, closely observing their athletes? Are they, Present on the field and in the weight room to, you know, um, have a more objective um, assessment of of the performance of their athletes, um, and then also looking at things um, like goal setting. So, you know, being able to effectively um, question their athletes and help them um, help them set goals related to skill acquisition um, and outcomes, and really focusing on the process. So that's another thing in my field. Um, yes, we're certainly interested in outcomes and results, but we're more interested in the specific behaviors that are part of the process of achieving those results. Um, a lot of times, I think, um, in, in various areas of life, um, we're so focused on, you know, for example, the number on the scale or the number of pounds that we have on the barbell, um, you know, and, and we're not looking at are you engaging in consistent action every day um, that is going to allow you to achieve those goals? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that really goes across all contexts, whether it's, you know, corporate workplace, um, sports organizations, or in our individual personal lives.
2: I'm going to backpedal a little bit and maybe get unnecessarily hung up on the term satisfaction, Mm -hmm. not in the sense of Mick Jagger, Satisfaction. But is satisfaction a catalyst for stagnation? Is that the right term? Are there other attributes to to measure within the athlete population? Cause as a coach, I can see I can I can see how you would want to temper the level of satisfaction or use a level of dissatisfaction as a motivator. And not necessarily like intentionally harpooning the well being of your team, but if mm-hmm. the team's satisfied, do they are they not as hungry? You know what I mean? Is that hmm. a thing? I mean, you, listen, you're the expert. I'm just a guy who does a bunch of bicep curls with a tribal <laughs> arm <band. laughs>
4: So give me an example of how you would use dissatisfaction as a motivator.
2: Uh, okay, so, and I'm thinking back to my high school career, which is where I peaked. Let me be very clear. I'm not an NFL veteran like John. I peaked in high school, it was glorious. Got that out of the way. <laughs> but um we we had a pretty successful football team in our like uh, in a pretty a pretty successful defensive squad, but our defensive head like our defensive coordinator never let us be satisfied with our performance. He was always you know you got you can do better you, you know you only gave up x amount but this this, and this here 's where we need to improve you can 't be satisfied, probably not in that terminology right mm-hmm. that's i 'm using a little bit of recency on that but It it, it was just the culture of that defense, like never be satisfied.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's really interesting because when you, you know, when we use words like satisfaction, it can mean something different. And that's why I asked you to give me that example, you know? And so, you know, does satisfied mean, you know, content with the way things are and I don't want to, you know, go above and beyond and engage in that discretionary effort sort of thing. And, um, you know, because there are, you know, I would argue that, you know, we can always do a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, But are we recognizing the kind of small wins along the way? Mm -hmm. And really, and that's something that I focus on a lot in um, coaching, you know, one-on-one coaching that I do with clients. Um, You know, we should be working toward those long-term goals. And certainly, you know, as as a coach of a sports team, you know, there are a lot of things that you want to continue to do better to take your performance to a higher level. Um, But we don't want to discount the achievements that we're making along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, um, you know, in conversations with, you know, coaches, with personal trainers, so on and so forth, you know, a lot of it is um, using like contingent exercises as a punisher, like, oh, you know, go run some extra laps and stuff like that. what's really the point of that? Like you're wearing, you know, the athlete down and now they're not going to be able to perform as well on the next drill that you want to, that you want them to do. So, you know, I think it's, you know, looking really carefully at, you know, why are we, um, you know, you know, why are we using some of those strategies and what effect do those strategies have? Um, One of the things that, you know, does, that, has come about in conversations that I've had um, I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had at um, an NSCA uh, clinic that I presented at and you know more often than not they were telling me about how coaches were using the punitive like punishment type procedures uh, versus using you know in my field the term is positive reinforcement so somebody engages in a behavior that you want to see, we need to make sure that we're reinforcing those behaviors, and a really easy way to do that is, you know, through, you know, our, our is is through you, the use of social reinforcers. So it might be verbal praise, it might be, you know, positive constructive feedback. And there is a way to give feedback to say, you know, like these are all the things that we've done well, um, and here are the things that we're continuing to work toward. And I think in the example that you gave, it's like, you know, here are all the things that you guys have been doing to get, you know, to move toward this big goal that we have. So let's recognize what we've done well. And also, you know, think about how are we going to work together to move even further forward? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, full disclosure, I realize I'm using a high school football coach. and he was good, but like, as he's, I understand it's not like the paragon of leadership and motivation and behavioral. Um, well, you we-
1: also have to think that the landscape yeah. for NCAA has completely altered with like the whole um, uh, transfer portal. So now you have kids that come in, and it's oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. if they're in a bad situation, they have the ability to get out pretty quick. When I was in college, if you didn't like it, you were either you do what you're told or you quit the team and you never play again. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think that there was a, a much different deal where. You know, you sign your letter of intent, you go there to school, you're in and either you, you know, bide your time or you're a good player, whatever it is, or you're out of there. And um, I think today with the way it works with, you know, kids being like, hey, you know, this coach promised me like I'm going to come in and start and now I'm not starting. So now it's a coach's fault. And, um, you know, and and these coaches get into it with, uh, you know, recruiting and lying to these kids instead of being honest and being like, you're 135 pounds. You probably, in about six years, are probably going to be decent at this, but we need you ready in three years. I mean, you know, but kids don't want to hear that today. Like, I know when I, um, when I got recruited by schools, they were like, you know, you're, you don't even own a Razor. It's probably going to be a couple years before you're big enough and strong enough to play college, I mean, to play at the level you want to be able to play at. And those, that was accurate assessments. Um, but I also knew when I went there that like, this is my shot, either I get it here or I don't play football. So whereas now kids can transfer out and this coach lied to me and this, and, and, you know, mm. I almost think that it's kind of put coaches in a bit of a disadvantage because now they have to continue to make sure that their players are happy. And it's almost like they're recruiting their own players every year to come back and play for their team more so than like, we know you guys are here. We got to go work on the next class. And I thought, I thought that was a really interesting, uh, observation, that I just heard, I can't remember one of the coaches, is like, I'm having to actively recruit and convince my players to stay because so many guys just want to pull the ripcord and get out of of what they view as a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And you're dealing with a bunch of uh, emotional kids and a bunch of parents that have no concept of what this thing is. Like if my son decided to play football and went to college and dad, he didn't tell me the truth. I'll be like, welcome to the real life. Just dude, uh, the best player plays regardless. And I'll, and this is my other favorite one with, uh, with college sports. My coach didn't like me. You know how many coaches I had that did not like me, but I played because I was the best player. Mm-hmm. It's very few coaches. I mean, cause their whole livelihood is staked on their ability to win and lose. Yeah. You would hope. And, and yeah. You hope. And so when people start doing things that are detrimental to their own success, that's what... I call insanity and like, you can't judge with that. But for the most part, I played for coaches that I didn't necessarily like, and I know they didn't necessarily like me, but because I was the best player, I always started. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. And that like, and I don't know all of the dynamics of, you know, different levels and different types of colleges. And, um, you know, I, all that, all that I can say, um, you know, with regard to my experience, because I, I didn't play um, sports um, in college. Um, I actually, um, ended up getting an injury in high school, uh, where I broke my hip and my femur. And I pretty much just was like, I'm on, I'm done. Um, but to me, I, you know, sports weren't a big deal to me at that time. It's actually kind of funny because, um, I now would consider myself more of an athlete than I ever was back then. But I grew up with a sister who, um, you know, from our very small, uh, hometown, you know, she played varsity basketball all four years of high school, wanted to go to to college, you know, thought she was going to be able to play college ball and, you know, realized that the dynamic is very different. The expectations are very different. And so her experience being, you know, the best player at the high school level and then going to college, we're realizing like everybody who's there is the, was the best player at their high school. And, uh, and now like the rules change, like things are different. And, you know, are you going to, are you going to put in the work to continue to be the best player at this new level? You know and I think you know when I think about it from you know a behavior analytic perspective um, you know I think one of the things that really needs to be done up front like no matter you know what sport you're going to compete in whether it's a team sport or an individual sport but the expectations need to be clear um, you know you know here are the things that you're expected to do and here's you know here are the consequences for <laughs> engaging in you know those specific behaviors and here are the consequences for not. Um, and you know and that's that's really kind of the the realm of the, our field is like you know setting up that environment to support those behaviors so if if you're if your athletes aren't engaging in the behaviors that you want to see, then you haven't set up the environment to support it
0: yeah,
1: um, but is a college coach like that's an interesting observation, but I sometimes wonder um and I've, I've, I I observe this not only in college but also in the NFL. Certain mm-hmm. players, because of their aptitude at a young age, are kind of granted a pass, and they're you mm-hmm. know anointed as this great one. And teachers give them cut them breaks and this. And I almost think that uh, you do them no disser- or you do them a tremendous disservice. And I can think of several guys that were like that in high school. And then when we came to college, I mean, I went to Berkeley, and like you know, there's nowhere to hide. It's a big school. Uh, nobody's looking to hold your hand, and if you want to just fall through the cracks, people will let you. And I remember Mm -hmm. guys, uh, you know, like failing out and like, I'm like, dude, you came here to play football. You just have to go to class and like, uh, just merely apply yourself. Well, high school is so much easy. Everybody was cutting me a break. And I remember thinking like, thank God nobody cut me a break or thank God I was not one of these golden child anointed that I was kind of like, but I played into it with time. But, um, like that work ethic part of like always feeling like somebody was better than me and I had to work. Like, it didn't matter if it was in the weight room, if it was on the football field or in class or whatever. I'm like, these nerds are way smarter than me and they don't think I should be here. So then my job is to, like, (laughs) nerds, uh, is to try to beat them. And, like, I just took that approach. And I just remember my roommate, who was, uh, like, the best offensive lineman in in America coming out of high school. And, you know, all these schools were kissing his ass and told him he was going to start and this. And I guess he went to high school and, uh, you know, got straight A's because the teachers were just so honored for him to walk into their class. And we get to school, and the guy has got zero aptitude and zero ability to survive in that environment. And I remember thinking, like, why would you have come here? Oh, well, they told me I was going to play football. I'm like, you never asked about the academic stuff? Did you think that you were just going to somehow slide through UC Berkeley? And uh, mm-hmm. he's like, well, I didn't really uh, uh, think about it like that, and I didn't really, um, you know, n- nobody told me this. Yeah, football was, first, right? Well, but and, and I remember thinking, like, uh, are you expecting a bunch of football coaches that are knuckle draggers that you know went to Idaho State? No offense, Jared Allen. Um, uh, you know, and these like you know like uh, what I would not consider centers of academic excellence. You're going to expect these individuals to come in and prep you for you know one of the probably the most competitive academic environments on the planet. And he was like, just kind of quiet and like, well, I didn't think about it like that. And I'm like, man, that's. Uh, Um, You know, and then at that point, I was really grateful that, um, you know, I grew up with a really intelligent, very smart father who was very condescending. Uh, I'm glad I grew up in that environment uh, because there was zero surprises, you know, just like when, you know, and then you learn these at a young age and then you just kind of like develop these skill sets and these tools. And then all you do is you just kind of, uh, you know, I guess you could say like, you know, um, pod them over and just be like, okay, here's the next, you know, hey, this is the the set of skills that I put together that allowed me to be successful here. Why can't I just replicate these in different places? And, um, I just, I like now with this environment where kids are, uh, you know, with the transfer portal, like in just this, like the, the stories, I just, I'm like, man, like, um, we've set up an environment where kids are not forced to persevere. They can just pull the ripcord and go somewhere else. And then you see like the Joe Burrow situation, like incredible. That kid won the Heisman, like good, good for him. But that, but that story has every kid who feels like some they got wronged and are not playing. Ah, uh, I didn't even think that. Uh, no, uh, like, I mean, I, amazing Transport story. Yeah, success. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, that kid is a, a talent, and he's one in a million. The problem is he's the one in the, you know, a trillion. Uh, The other, every other one of these kids are not Joe Burrow. And, but yet they think because of, you know, uh, high school and parents and all these uh, individuals kissing their ass for so much that, wait a minute, hold on. I'm being denied my ability and my right. And so now I'm going to do this instead of being like, you know what? I do suck. I am no good. And you know what? Uh, I, that doesn't have to be my reality tomorrow. It's my reality today. So now I'm going to put this, the, you know, the, um, the tools that I've amassed and learned and. I'm going to go forward and, and, you know, and be successful. And um, what I really worry about when I, whenever I hear stuff like this is like um, the coaches, I think, do a really shitty job of preparing the kids for adversity. Because the only way they know how to deal with stuff is by screaming and yelling and then, you know, being derogatory and, you know, that. And now the situation is now kids are like, well, this guy's an asshole. He doesn't have the skills because he's a, you know, not that intelligent or
3: he just doesn't have never developed it. Well, so then kids coaches. pull up. Yeah, I was saying not all coaches. And no, not all. this is the all. aim of Julie's research and breaking down that we can try to change this. Well, so uh, we understand the coaches. They need the education piece more than the, than the athletes do. Right, we understand the coach's responsibility, take an athlete where they can't take themselves, but it is on the coaches to develop a, self, a level of self-awareness. So if, if Julie's breaking down, and I love these four categories, Julie, you can assess your ability as a coach. If we have characteristics, you can grade yourself on that characteristic and then identify weakness. But also, if you understand your role, knowing your role, if you're a high school coach... It's not about winning now. It's about setting these kids up for their next career or school and developing the, the infrastructure to show up on time, do your homework, and then you get the opportunity to play. So it, it is knowing your role. And if we, I've seen some selfish high school coaches that neglect these things and then athletes pay for it long term. Sure. We, we talked about an athlete or two yeah. that you played with, John, that didn't have the infrastructure that come in and eventually it catches up to them. So Mm -hmm. if the high school coach can take that ownership and with these understanding these four categories and then specific characteristics within that category, we're empowering them to have self-improvement to then improve their young men and women. Mm
4: -hmm. You did a wonderful job of describing that.
3: (laughs) Great job, McQuilkin.
1: (laughs) I had some good. Um some poor mm-hmm. coaches, but. Oh, I, I, I think the amount of uh, good and bad coaches we've all had, I've probably erred on the side of more bad coaches. That, like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. You. I played for some people that I succeeded to spite that individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's so is funny that motivation? You, uh, maybe, uh, but I, I, I think, like. But it's like,
2: did you <clears throat> did you succeed in spite of that, right? And, and I, like, it's funny hearing you guys talk. Granted, like, again, I'm peaked in high school, it was awesome. But I can't think of a coach that ever created that type of friction. And when, you know, I, I, you said something, Julie, about if you're not getting the outcomes, and maybe might, I'm butchering this and mm-hmm. so you can clarify, if you're not getting the outcomes that you're expecting, then you haven't created the proper environment, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't help but look back and maybe it's just like a jaded view and you know how uh
1: who who, tarot uh it um no what is it it's uh um, no yeah uh uh, time knocks all the edges off of everything
2: but i remember every one of those coaches creating an awesome environment where all of us just loved the game loved our teammates all the way up till the end
3: so julie for reference there's a book called spark and it Dives into Luke's educational system. Mm-hmm. So he complements the environment, and there's actually plenty of research and a book written on his middle school and high, high school, school. Yeah. teachers and coaches. So, and he now I, I was
2: well, thinking about this, like again, trying to think back of the fitness pads for this morning's podcast. We had whoa, was, whoa, 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 that's not a podcast or
1: shtick. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's our 6 a.m. shtick.
2: Uh, and it brought me back to just thinking about football. There was a guy named Bob Napolitano who wasn't on the board, like school board. He wasn't in the NYFL. He wasn't, he was like, he was like in the, he was a lobbyist for the whole pipeline from junior pee wee football to varsity football. And he just connected all the coaches. He like made sure that kids all kind of went with like, he just kind of pulled all the strings to make sure that varsity football was ready. Like and it was crazy. He managed the whole pipeline. He was just a relationship guy. Bob Napolitano. And um, like that, I feel like he, he was kind of like the mastermind in trying to give coaches heads up on who to look for. Hey, the coaches want this out of this. Make sure this team's running this type of defensive, like sixth grade team is running a defensive thing we're going to be putting into the varsity next year. Like it was crazy. So that was like pretty well-oiled machine. And it just worked for us. And mm-hmm. like the coaches wanted us to have fun. And man... Uh, but then I hear text your stories and John your stories where it's like these coaches are saying the most egregious shit
1: to you. Oh, uh, where it's well I mean so so like just
2: intentionally trying to take the air well, out of your time.
1: So the high school I played at um my uh They had like some financial issues uh, because there was three high schools one of the high schools went to shut down and uh, a bunch of the parents didn't want their kids to go to the other high school so they were wealthy and they sued the school district for like 10 years We're in this lawsuit basically bankrupted our school district so after this whole thing ended because they stopped the lawsuit after all their kids graduated so they closed that school down this is just i grew up in southern california in a very affluent area where people uh, laws don't really apply to them so they shut down our whole school district, which had three high schools, and they made like one mega high school. And so my brothers, I was the youngest of three. My brothers played at like uh, Palos Verdes High School, and then they closed it and they consolidated into uh, at, the, at Rolling Hills. And the head football coach from Rolling Hills became our head football coach and uh, always disliked my, not only me, but also my brothers from it was like a 30 year rivalry. Mm-hmm. so like i go to play for this guy who was such a prick he was like five foot four ex marine like was just such a dick and um he like actually his goal was to try to get all the pv kids to quit and he did other than me and um he was just like i remember uh me thinking like this dude's never going to cut me a break on anything i'm just going to be the best player i can and i ended up playing to the point where um uh just, just give you a little sidebar on this guy is, you know, schools back in the day used to send letters to the high school for, for the players. And so he took the letters and was just throwing them away. And one of my buddies was like, Hey, uh, you're getting letters to the office. You should go get those before the coach throws them away. And so I would walk in the office at like seven thirty in the morning where all the mailboxes were. And I would just take all of my letters, go fill them out and then send them game film pretending to be my coach. And then all wow. this stuff happened. And then at the and then if, after the last game, uh, he comes over and he's like, Yeah, hey, um, I might have some letters in my office for some schools. And I was like, No problem, hold on to those. And then, uh, like, the, uh, you know, and then the hilarious part is when I got drafted, uh, he like hit up my parents about getting a jersey, and my dad called me. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, Send him a bag of dog shit.
2: Is it possible, though, that was like, he, he, that was the environment he's trying to create to like motivate you because it's all new? Is it no, possible? No, he just not- no,
1: he genuinely told me he didn't like me. He was like, I don't like you at all.
2: hmm, That's pretty convincing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And what's crazy is is our football coach from PB, that uh, they were our junior, uh, our sophomore coaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were great. And they were always like, and they told me, they were like, you realize that when you go to varsity, it's going to be an awful experience because of this PB rivalry. And it's going to take years for this whole thing to kind of melt out. And uh, they're like, you're just gonna have to weather the storm. And I went there, and it was like these coaches would always be like, you know, hey, what up, C King, or like PB mm-hmm. and stuff. And there was just a huge robbery in our town, and they just it it was a, a bad, bad situation. But I ended up getting scholarships because I was a good player, and eventually they found me, regardless of how hard they tried. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and I always think, man, you shake the pale cream, rises to the top, mm-hmm. which has always kind of been the deal. So.
0: That little ditty and the sound of my smooth, sensual, yet strong voice means you're about halfway through our chat with Dr. Slowiak, and you've earned yourself a little brain break brought to you by our friends at Train Heroic. And I know you're like, Callie, your voice is smooth, sensual, yet strong, but what does that have to do with Train Heroic? And the answer is, it doesn't. But here's why we at Power Athlete think it's important that you're aware of what Train Heroic is capable of. Their whole jam is to empower you to train without limits. Sound familiar? That means that you can take your little gym business or side hustle and absolutely blow the fucking doors off of it. Their immersive training solutions allow you to train athletes from New York to Nicaragua. And FYI, if you consult a map, those places are really far from each other. Gym space is not an issue. Distance, not an issue. And scheduling, well, we already know that time is an illusion, but it's even more illusion. With Train Heroic. With Train Heroic, you can provide an engaging, flexible, and affordable training experience for your people wherever they are on this flat earth. They provide everything you need to look like a pro even if you're a complete Luke Summers and transition into this brave new world of online training. The best part is that they give you a fortnight of free usage. That's two weeks for anyone not born in the 1700s. And when that wraps up, you can keep the party going for the price of a Chipotle burrito. But wait, there's more. A burrito without guac and you pay only as your business gains grow. The whole crew uses Train Heroic and has done so for years. There's a reason we are taking the time to mention it, and it's not because they promised us a party barge or a suitcase full of collectible Beanie Babies, uh, baby tigers, or anything else that you deem to be extremely valuable. It's simply because we like them, we use them, and we believe in what they can do for your business and your athletes. Power Athlete has grown by 50% for the last four years because of Train Heroic. And in the words of one of my old coaches, you can't argue with results. Head over to trainheroic.com, click on the free trial button in the upper right-hand corner, and get started today. Now back to the show.
3: Julie, question for you. Where in these four categories would you assign behaviors such as is, is timeliness or problem solving, say you're, you're failing or losing, right? Your team is not being constructed. Mm-hmm. So I understand skill development, maybe sports skill connected, mm-hmm. but then like, where would you have the constructive behaviors that a high schooler can take to have success? Where would those fall within the four categories that you, you presented here if they do it all?
4: Mm, I don't know that they would fall in any one um, particular, um, except that I would say, you know, as, as a coach, I would be observing, um, you know, each athlete, and it really is on an individual level, Um, you know, so what are the strengths and weaknesses, what are the areas and opportunities for improvement for that individual um, athlete, you know, identifying those that's kind of in the observing and performance analysis piece. And then we get into the, you know, engaging in effective questioning and goal setting. So, you know, once you've identified sort of those performance discrepancies or opportunities for improvement, then we go into, okay, well, um, you know, maybe maybe I need to provide some instruction. Maybe I need to model that performance for you, um, and, and you know, and set some goals. So I need to figure out, you know, really once I've once I've pinpointed. The specific athlete behaviors that I want to improve upon, I need to identify. You know, what is the reason that that behavior isn't happening? Is it that they don't know what's expected of them? Is it that they don't have a particular skill set to engage in? You know, that particular behavior or that performance, um, or is it something where you know they 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 aren't motivated, so to speak? And motivated is a loaded term. Um, you know, in in our field, we talk about how um, performance is really a function of the consequences of an action. So anytime somebody engages in a behavior, look at what happens after they engage in that particular behavior. Because more often than not, by looking at the consequences of the behavior, you're going to be able to figure out um, why that behavior is or is not occurring. So um, for example, if a behavior is occurring, either I'm getting something that I want or I'm avoiding something that I don't want. OK, I'm avoiding the aversive. So um, so that's where, you know, when you have those coaches who use kind of the the punitive uh, forms of motivation, like do this or else. Well, yeah, I'm going to engage. <laughs> I'm going to do what you tell me to do because I don't want to get penalized. I don't want to sit the bench. So, you know, you're really kind of, uh, you know, eliciting that fear response or, a, you know, um, a fear response. Um, fear-based uh response is that and a bad that, thing
1: though huh is that a bad thing i mean is it better to be feared argue, than loved
4: yeah yeah well i would say like if you're looking at you know overall well-being and if you don't want your athletes or your employees or your students to burn out and leave um that's where we want to bring more of the positive reinforcement in versus um you know using those punishment techniques or
1: using negative reinforcement. Is there, um, is there a a differentiation between male and female and then also with different sports? Like um, it's pretty interesting. Like uh, the, you know, the coaching style that they would use for football is very different than the, you know, the type of player that gravitates towards basketball. Or I can think like, uh, you know, uh, women's, you know, women's sports versus swimming versus this. I mean, um, one of my, more, most interesting ones, I think, was uh, one of our football coaches was also a wrestling coach in high school. And I remember him asking, he's like, man, um, I don't like the way I coach wrestlers is dramatically different than how I play or coach football players. And I was like, well, why is that? He's like, I feel like with football players, I got to put like a whip on your back. He's like, with the wrestlers, I almost have to put like pull the reins back. Just the type mm-hmm. of person that gravitates towards that sport is the type of guy that I got to like pull back, whereas you football guys, like, I feel like I got to put a whip on your back. I always thought that was kind of an interesting observation. Like that, um, you know, I mean, uh, not every individual is led the same way. So I just didn't know if there was a kind of a, a potting, or at least like you know, like hey, like this type of of uh, environment works best for these athletes based upon not only gender but also sport.
4: Yeah, so I'm not um, I'm not familiar with any research that's been done on that, but we do have a saying um, in our field, and we say different strokes for different folks. So you know, what motivates you? is going to be different than what motivates me. And I like to give, um, when I'm teaching this concept to my students, I like to give the example of, um, let's say that you're out at a bar, right. And, um, you know, an individual goes up and, you know, says the, like the smoothest pickup line. Are they observing the six foot, in, is there huh? a six
1: foot, uh, six foot like distance rule on this? Are they yelling it out or do they, <laughs> did they break the six foot rule?
4: Right, right now, I guess we'd have to have the six foot rule in place. Right. Um, But you know, so in this case, let's pretend that social, um, physical distancing is not um, an element. Um, You know, so, you know, this, this guy goes up to the girl, smooth pickup line, she slaps him. Okay. Like, would you say that that was, you know, a positive or a negative experience for that guy?
1: Uh, it d- d- depends on uh, what you're into, but, you Good know, hit. I mean, Luke Summers on one hand would probably take that as a, uh, as a victory,
2: man, I would right. dodge that slap, <laughs> <I'll
4: catch it. laughs> but you hit the nail on the head. It really depends. So we need to like, first, like see like what happens next, you know, does he continue to go up to another person and give the same pickup line and get the slap. So the slap could be punishing to some, and they like no longer, you know, attempt to go up and you know try to pick up somebody at the bar um but for others maybe it's just their way of getting attention if they're not getting attention in other ways they're going to engage in whatever behavior it is to get that attention so that's what i mean like we really have to figure out like what is the function of that behavior um and one of the things that i um that that, um, we know from the field of behavior analysis is that our attention is our most powerful social reinforcer so what we give our attention to, we're going to get more of. And, and you can equate this with, you know, everything from, you know, the behavior of young children to the behavior of adults. You know, um, you know, if we have children in in the home who um, are looking for attention and they're not getting it for, you know, doing the things that they're supposed to do, what usually happens? Well, we start to see tantruming. We start to see, you know those outbursts, Um, we start to see them start fighting with their siblings, Um, anything that they can do to get the attention that they're not getting for engaging in appropriate behaviors, right? Um, And I I would say that we see the same thing with students in the classroom with athletes on the field. You know, if they're not getting, if they're attention deprived, they're going to start looking for that attention and doing things. And if they're, you know, if they follow the rules and they're doing all the things that they've been told that they're going, that they're supposed to do, and they're not getting recognition for that, they're going to start trying, you know, they're going to, um, it's almost like, this is where we start to see some of that um, creativity and uh, variation in problem solving behavior. It's like, well, I, I did this expecting this to happen what I expected to happen didn't happen. So now I'm going to try a different way to get that same outcome. Right. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. It's kind of like dogs. You know, if you don't give them attention, they get destructive. You know, if if, if you don't exercise them and get them out and give them attention, then they just look for ways to destroy shit. And then you're like, and then they get attention, you know?
4: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I didn't want to bring, bring the animals up, but you know, in a lot of ways. um, And I worked in an animal lab, um, that was some of the first research, um, that I did in the field of behavior analysis was working with rats and pigeons and looking at, um, animal models of gambling behavior, actually. Um, and you know, there's, there are a lot of things, um, and, and I will say like, we've shown this in the research, um, that pre-verbal humans or, um, humans with low cognitive functioning, um, their behavior patterns are very similar to dogs, pigeons, rats, you know any kind of animal. So hang um, on. Who? So. Okay.
2: What is a? So I don't know how I want to ask this because this this your credibility is on the line here. Uh oh. Are you a, a dog person or a cat person?
4: Oh, well, I am a dog person.
2: All right, you're credible. You you <laughs> have passed. This podcast is now working.
4: <laughs> I
3: thought yes. you were going to yes. ask what a non-communicative person was. Is that like a oh. <laughs> We call him a Tex. Uh, yeah, I was going to say,
1: oh, honestly, you, you fucking beat me to it. I was like, that's what we call Tex. Oh, damn Tex, it. you love him, man. You're cool, uh, bro. That's, uh,
2: see, he, you are funny.
1: You know, the problem is, is he just got it out faster than me because I was trying not to laugh. So I'm going to make an excuse that I didn't get that out so first. So for our
2: listeners, Tex has a look on his face like... He just grabbed an electric fence and knew he just turned it on. Like, oh, turn on the electric fence. What's this? He's like, why didn't I know that was
1: going to shock me? So, well, the reason is is because he has a sense of humor, but he lacks timing. Self defense, and he lacks <laughs> self defense. He 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 constantly puts himself. It's like, hey, punch me in the face. Okay, I'll tape my hands behind my. Head. Now punch me again. You know, uh, Oh, i It's like self deprecation. Yes. No, sorry. no, 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 no. If it was self deprecating, you would have beat him to the punch by making fun of Besides yourself me. first.
2: Yeah. Uh, but bump I'm set sorry. spike. Yes. Okay. I'm
3: sorry. Thank you. To directing that towards Julie, what did she mean by
4: that? Yeah. By what? By the uh, um,
1: paint lickers and mouth breathers are have the non- uh, most emotional intelligence non-verbal. and the uh, as pigeons and rats,
2: so yeah. What, about what, what I was really
4: referring to is if we look at really young children before they develop mm-hmm. their verbal and cognitive abilities, so mm-hmm. like for example, when my best friend brought her, you know, new, I don't know, like he was like six months old, um, you know, he can't really communicate, and so we like watched. You know, her young, young child um, interact with my dog. And it was funny, like, you know, the dog would go this way. The child would follow. The child would go this way. The dog would follow the child. And so there's a lot of that mimicking um, and observational um, behavior that, that happens. Um, but what happens when we, um, so, so like really um, human behavior is so complex because of our verbal abilities, okay? We can follow rules. Okay. So a young child when they're, you know, a month, two months old, I can't tell them like, don't touch the stove when the burner is red, because that means it's hot and you're going to get hurt. They don't understand that. So how do they learn when they're that young? They learn through direct, what we call direct acting contingencies. You know, they go over and they stick there. Like I, I grew up in the age, you know, I I was young and, you know, there are these things in the wall that have holes in them and you like put your finger in and you realize, Oh, you know, I get a shock <laughs> when I stick my finger in the outlet. You uh, know,
1: my son not, must not be very smart because um, he did it probably 20 times. Yeah. He, <laughs> he shocked himself. And I was like, Ooh, that hurt. And he was over there again. And I'm like, uh, oh, this little dumbass." That's the Oh,
4: uh, well, uh, well, see what that just, boys
1: are, well, um, different I have,
4: strokes for different folks, right? Like
1: I have 20, I have twin Is girls and I have a little boy. And uh, women are dramatically smarter. Like I know why. Like I know why a, a higher amount of men die than women because uh, they're just not nearly as developed. Women are pretty sharp. They figure stuff out. Little like my little boy would like probably eat paint chips if I gave him. So
2: what flavor? i in
1: paint. <laughs> You're like I love those as a kid.
4: Yeah. So um. So that's really what I meant. Like before we have those that level of, of comprehension, you know, to be able to understand rules. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we see kind of behavior behavior patterns that are more similar to what we see if, um, with animal research and um, animal models of behavior.
2: So Julie, I guess as a coach or, well, I'm going to pivot. Let's go into like family, asking for a friend. Yeah. I have an eight month old. So I'm trying to like, Understand these environments and I observe intently my friends who have older children um, and are struggling and succeeding, And you know, you try to just kind of do your best to prepare for the unknown, which is, uh, I totally acknowledge, totally unknown, right? So in terms of creating that environment to get the outcomes through like simple requests or however you want to uh, phrase it, that has to that has to constantly be evolving within like an ad, like a child to a preteen to an adolescent. And it probably goes for like it lily pads back and forth and then all around. So you just got to have the bandwidth and wherewithal to keep up with whatever environment's going to provide a successful quote unquote outcome. Right. And then I'm sure that changes from child to child, right? Like a, a Jamie to Achilles. Yeah. As, yeah. I mean, and it,
4: and that's why I think it's so complex and, and so difficult even for parents because, you know, one, one child will react differently to, you know, to requests um, and to different types of activities that you think they will enjoy. Um, and the other is going to be completely the opposite. Um, but, you know, it, it really does have this ripple effect. So, you know, like John was, you know, saying, you know, how, um, you know, how, how things were in, you know, in high school and then in college um, and, you know, our ability to develop that resiliency, well, we need to start learning those skills when we're young and it needs to start in that family environment. And it sounds like from what John was saying that some of the experiences that he had based on how, you know, his his upbringing and, you know, the structure that was in place, um, I think you used the word condescending, yeah. um, you know, like that shaped who you were and probably um, you know, had had some influence for how you reacted to coaches then that you had in high school and college and, um, and beyond. And, you know, so it, it's really interesting because in the 12 years that I have been a college professor, the shift that I see in my students, um, you know, so I will say, well, like you can tell that things have changed that, you know, students aren't getting this certain type of, aren't getting the same structure And um, to their education in middle school, high school um, and college that I did, because the students coming into college now are expecting things that I would have never expected when I was in college myself. Did you
1: read uh, The Coddling of the American Mind? Did you read that No, then? I have
4: not read that one.
1: so yeah the Coddling the American Mind, I highly recommend it. it was um, so I uh, did my graduate work at Berkeley, and so I had to do student teaching and the whole deal yep. and um, it was really actually very impactful uh, book for me to like help understand how the landscape of uh, public education and just education in America has changed mm-hmm. and then, as you were talking about like resiliency, I kept thinking of uh, Angela Duckworth's grit,
4: mm-hmm. yep. which
1: is another phenomenal book so.
4: Yeah. And another one that I would recommend is the nurture effect. Um, So Anthony Biglin wrote that book and he really does talk about how it all needs to start at a young age in the family environment. And then, you know, if we can really support families in those early years, then we set up the, you know, the school systems once the, you know, because once a kid leaves the family environment, now they're exposed to a new environment. That new environment needs to be set up to support what the, what they've been learning within their family system, um, and then each thing needs to build. So um, I really would recommend um, it's a it's a fantastic book.
1: No, I'm, um, I'll, I'll I'll probably leap here and buy it immediately. Yeah. Um, the uh, a really interesting observation about these unique times that we're in. I mean, my uh, all three of my kids. My little boy goes to Montessori. My daughters are in second grade, and now uh, due to this, we're homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, uh, it's it's really really enlightening to see um the environment that the kids and through their learning and how they do this stuff um and like uh like just the amount of hand-holding that the teachers do for these kids like um you know, like they're like it's not necessarily well at least maybe maybe it's different because they've come home and they're expecting us to help them um like the lack of problem solving like that's like my biggest thing is like these kids came they have zero problem sol- uh, solving whereas like I wouldn't ask for help until like I was totally stumped like I figured everything out like their first inclination is to raise their hand and I don't know if that's uh, indicative of second grade or whatever but like we've gone through this whole like analytical problem solving okay what's the problem write the problem down then let's break it into pieces and I'm been taking them through this problem solving deal and I'm like but we do everything this way like hey like let's establish like let's figure out what the problem is and then let's look at it in an analytical way on how we're gonna to solve this problem. Uh, just raising your hand and asking somebody to help you um, is it, it's like, uh, you know, as a, a chick's cracking an egg, I go help the the chick, the chick dies, so it has to develop the resiliency for its uh, metabolic system to fight through and like create that stress. And it's mm-hmm. been really, really interesting. And I'm like, man, is this just how it was in second grade or is something happened in, in school? Whereas um, the teachers or the environment is not creating the same resiliency that I would expect.
4: Yeah, well, and I think you know that that's always something that's piqued my interest too, um, because our you know students and and us in general, we have at at our fingertips. We can plug in like, how do I do this? Um, You know, Uh, like sometimes my response, you know, when I'm asked a certain question is, well, like Google it. Um, Like you have the resources available. Um, and and you
1: know, but like, you remember Google a time before, for a
4: lot of other things. But What's you
1: remember that? a time before Google, Yes. Like where where like if you either had to physically call somebody or I had to go to the mm-hmm. library to look it up. And I was I was talking to the kids about like we didn't have access to this. There was like four channels yeah. that sucked. Uh, if my mom didn't know, I either had to like go to the library or you had to call and ask somebody
2: yeah, or like get a yeah. magazine.
1: Well, I I, like my dad was, uh, he's since passed away, but my dad was super smart. Like he graduated high school at 16, graduated uh, college at 20 and was a lawyer by the time he was 21 or 22 and, um, had like a photographic memory. So I could ask him questions. Yeah. What about this? And he would like recall stuff that he read 30 years ago. So he was like, um, my, my brother's also a lawyer and my, he's, he joked that my dad was like Westlaw, which is the, uh. Uh, research that lawyers use like they type in stuff and it gives them case stuff Mm -hmm. he's like "Um, your dad or he goes "Uh, pop was like Westlaw I could call him and he would kick us back cases that you know had had done but long Mm -hmm. story short um, like the research part of like trying to figure this stuff out because there was no Google I almost wonder if having like every answer to every world's question in the palm of our hand has created like
4: yeah
1: is, is is handicapping these kids
4: yeah Yeah. So again, like we've created a system and a culture that doesn't support problem solving and creative behavior. And so now it's a skill, like I actually have colleagues who their area of research is how do we train problem solving skills? How do we train creativity? Um, Because we're starting to see that those behaviors that kind of just seem to develop more naturally with the old system and the old environment (laughs) Um, aren't, aren't developing. And it, and it might be, it might be like you said, John, maybe because, you know, we have technology, which is great, right? Like there are so many things that we can do now that we couldn't do. I didn't have an email address or access to the internet um, until my junior year of high school. Yeah. Um, I grew up with a rotary phone.
1: <laughs> no,
4: um, going out to play was going out in the back 40 and, you know, pretending that we were Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Like that was my childhood, I, and, and I. I think told that my that daughters,
1: uh, not not to cut you off, but I I told my daughters that back in the day you used to have to get on your bike and you'd ride over to your friend's house and and because like you call them on the phone nobody would answer so you just right. rode around looking for where all your friends' bikes were, and yeah. that's where you would meet up. And they were like, you just go over there, would be bikes. What about them? I'm like, you know, you just go show up, and like yeah. and either you have the, to stop. And they were like, well, did they call and invite you? And I'm like, no, because nobody calls anybody. You just ride bikes, and then when you meet up with other kids, those are your friends. And, like, mm-hmm. they, like, couldn't, like, wait, mom didn't drive us over there. And
2: Here's the real question. Were you a kickstand guy? Did you Would you, like, park <laughs> and, like, put your kickstand no. on like a dork? No. So you got, like, the grass plugs in your handlebars? Uh,
1: about? Yeah.
2: Like, you just throw your bike down, and like, eventually you'd get a bunch of dirt in there?
1: Uh, actually, no. You know what I did? Uh, I did we didn't have kickstands, but we flipped our bikes over and put them on the seats with the handlebars up. Mm, that was, right. like, our standard deal. So we always flipped them over. <laughs> Never even seen that. Oh, yeah. Well, that, maybe it's a Southern California thing. I mean, you hillbillies and, and <laughs> hicks from the Midwest don't know what fucking cool hillbilly. is. Yeah, hillbilly, white trash. Uh, but the, um, Count the the other one, too, and this was uh, um, like, so at 6 o'clock at my house, I told, the, I, I told the kids now that the internet is down. And I just go turn <laughs> off the router, and so like they're like, I, I told them like, hey, you know what? They're they're doing these random uh, blackouts, and they're yes. blacking out the internet at All six right. o'clock. Can do that, with Ashley. And um, the, so I was like, any homework you have, like, and they they were like, well, what do you mean the internet turns off? I'm like, well, the government is nervous that if there's a riot or something, they don't want other states to talk. So what they're doing is they're planning on setting the uh, internet off at six o'clock as mm-hmm. a test. So we're not going to have internet past six. So, so here's so, the thing: you're so, not
2: lying because you are a form of government. You didn't. Yeah. Say which
1: government? I I I, I just which refer to like the, the government, and um, <laughs> so like the uh, you know uh, Netflix or the TV, whatever. Yeah, like nothing works, and uh, I tell them like when I was a kid, and they were like, uh, and my they think it's hilarious. My kids ask me I'm like, so wait, like what was on TV? I'm like, we had a few crappy channels. If you had a show, you watched it and you turned it off because there was nothing else. And then they were like, well, then what would you do? I'm like, we would read books. Like, and then they were, and then they asked her like, well, where did you get the books? I'm like, we would go to the library. We would check books out. We would read, and we, every week we went to the library and we got books. And like this stuff completely blows their mind. Like I'm like, there's no Amazon. You had to go to the store, and when you went to the store, you didn't know if you were going to get anything. Mm-hmm. Like it just. It, it, I told so, my kids if I could find a spaceship to take them back to about nineteen between 1978 and 1984, so we could start this thing over again, I would be so much happier as a parent. Julie,
3: here's a question: Is so taking what John said, I'm going to call that. For lack of a better term, manipulation. But <laughs> what is it more beneficial to manipulate your kids into a behavior or model a behavior? Objection! So, leading, first of all, first of all, leading, first leading of all,
1: the guest. he's not a parent. You, I, I have zero qualms like, with thing, lying uh, to my kids to force them. Like, uh, I, I'm, I told him. But Texas, I told him.
2: Say th- you deal with children every day.
3: <laughs> I deal with Jill Julie, I deal with children every day. Hey. <laughs> like a like a I am not a robot. So is there any research or do you have an opinion or a take or any guidance there? Different strokes for different folks.
1: Uh I'll give you some research as soon as she's done.
4: So so I'm I'm not familiar with any kind of family based research on that. I would say um, you know, what are the uh, I would be thinking ahead of you know what am I what am I teaching my children? I I don't have children either, so I'll be upfront. I mean, I have a furry four legged, um, but I don't have human children. Um, and you know, so I think just thinking about your children are going to be observing you and what you are doing, and they're going to see how this works. Um, you know, like you're setting up you're setting up a simulated environment where they don't have access to those things. Um, know so i think it's more a matter of how are you how are you relaying the intention or the purpose of what you're doing to your children are you going to tell them you know really what is going on um and are you going to use it as a learning opportunity if you're you know kind of using this as you know later on you're going to tell them that really no like i shut off the internet um, but this is why I did it so that you would you know engage in other activities that that we don't need the internet for um, And and why that's why that's helpful why that's useful um, to them um, I like to think of it because you know manipulation comes up a lot in my field like one of the kind of like myths and mis-, mis misconceptions um, about individuals who are trained in the field of behavior analysis is that we are manipulating behavior um, I like to think of it as we are behavior change agents. We are helping facilitate um, behavior, and I we call really it molding.
1: are. What's that? I call it molding. Sure. Molding like in behavior. some ways,
4: it could, it could be molding, right? So, like you know, um, you know, I would, you know, and there are a number of, of techniques that we can use. So, um, modeling is one that we use a lot. Um, we ha- we have what we call behavioral skills training (BST) is a technique that we use a lot starts out with instruction, with modeling, Um, then there's this rehearsal or practice phase, um, and then there's feedback, Um, you know, but but one of the ways that we learn, and especially, you know, from very early age is by watching what our parents do and what happens as a result of the things that our parents do. So, you know, I think back now at things that I wasn't a big fan of my father for doing, um, because, My father didn't serve in the military, but man, you would think that he probably did. Um, and at the time I didn't like his approach, but I could see, and and really what I didn't like is that he just followed through (laughs) with, you know, you know, here here are here's the rule, here's the consequence for not following the rule. Um, and now I appreciate it because I understand that, you know, rules need to be followed, otherwise. There are consequences. Now, am I saying that my father did everything right? You know, absolutely not. And he and I talk about that all the time. Um, but he did, you know, kind of help me see that now when I'm an instructor in a classroom, I have policies, right? So my students get this like 20 page syllabus at the beginning of the semester, and it has all the policies, including my policy on late assignments. I'm one of those jerk professors who like, if it's late, it's late, like too bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what I see myself doing, and especially if I'm teaching a class in in behavior analysis, um, but I see my role is preparing my students for the real world. Is their future boss going to be okay with handing in assignments, projects late? Mm -hmm. Probably not. So if I, I would be setting them up to fail if I accept assignment late, and I know that there are, you know, teachers, um, there are other professors at the collegiate level who would not share my opinion, um, and I and I know that there are high school teachers who would not share my opinion. Like you get it done, you get credit, um, but you know, I set that up, and, and I had I had a student question me on it. I you know the year that I was going up for tenure, I had a student say, you know, I handed it in like five minutes after the, the due date. Um, or after the deadline. And, um, you know, and I had to worry, like was now my tenure going to be online. And I was, you know, really grateful that I had a supportive, um, you know, supervisor um, who had my back, you know, when I was able to justify why I had that policy in place. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing, you know, if we're going to put rules and we're going to put policies in place, we need to give the rationale for them, whether you're a coach, whether you're a parent, you know, um, or even if it's just relationship boundaries that you have, um, you know, letting people know the why behind, you know, the rules and policies that you're putting in place is crucial. Um, because it allows them to get behind um behind that intention as well. And
2: I would imagine because I said so isn't probably yeah. not substantive well, enough.
1: This is also the uh the crux of this deal where you have a for-profit university where your uh, uh, customers are the students, mm-hmm. and they're they're paying you for this not only this education but these grades so that they can you know amass some GPA to be able to go on and do other things. And I always thought that it's like. Uh, If these are your customers, I mean, as you see all the time, like, hey, we got a standard return policy and then people outside of it, like, you know, it's worth for us to take the return and deal and just acquiesce to the customer, flex on it because it's not worth the bad publicity. It's not worth people fucking, you know, putting a line in the sand and, you know, I'm your I'm I'm your consumer. So that's why I always Mm -hmm. thought, like uh, the failure of public education was basically making for profit centers. I'm like, if these were all nonprofits and and like weren't running as like, you know, to, for these endowments or whatnot, I thought, uh, and I think that's probably the death of public education. Uh, to go back to Texas Point, they did a pretty extensive research deal where they looked at mothers that raised their children without the father in the home and then they looked at how the mother explained to the children, like uh, told them about like, their father and the women who lied to their children and told them your father was an amazing person who died in the war defending his country or, you know, did this, those children grew up em- emulating their father and actually had tremendous success uh, like going on and like, you know, winning scholarships, you know, going on and being president of the United States, the women who were honest with their told them and told them that your father is a piece of shit who left us. Those kids were not nearly as successful as growing up. And they actually theorized it was better to have a father, not in the home whose mother told the children a lie about what a great person he was than to have a father, to have the mother be honest or have a poor father figure in the household. Is so that a form of modeling, creating a representation to aspire to? Yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I have, um, and you, like I did this. I told my kids they were allergic to gluten. <laughs> right? right. Uh, my one daughter is, um, and we knew it as a baby. I mean, it was like a dramatic difference in like you know the number two. So I just told all my kids just be, so that she was never kind of put within a situation. So like they'll like be like, oh, does that have gluten in it? I'm like, you know, you guys are allergic. Then they'll figure it out at some point, uh, but. Uh, Like, it's just easier for me to tell them that they're all gluten-free so that I don't have to create any, like, division amongst it. Like, oh, so-and-so gets this and this. And my wife has just held the line on it. Uh, They'll figure it out at some point. But, um, you know, for the most part, like, I think being uh, there are certain things like that that, you know, just tend to play for the the better good of the family.
2: But is it possible in that study that just... You know, by the characteristic of that mother trying to create the possibility that that parenting style in general was more centered around the child. Whereas if a mother were quick to accuse um, uh, the father for being an asshole, just that became kind of like a selfish type of parent who maybe was quick to call the kids assholes, you know, like, like. Uh, is that I'm, just
1: one uh, bit in that study? I'm just saying that that this is the piece of evidence I needed to uh, basically, you know, put a death nail in McQuilkin's theory on just about everything. Okay. I don't know. So, it's called a modeling. Uh, but the, uh, I think that there is, um, kids, let me think, like, because, like, uh, and I've told Luke this comment, like, um people get so stressed out about parenting and my comment to them is like, there's really dumb people that have raised no Nobel laureates. There are people that are orders of magnitude dumber than you that have raised successful children. So like, Mm -hmm. just know that like no parent gets a guidebook. Everybody's just pretending like they know what they're doing, right? Regardless of whether or not you admit it. Uh, so like, just go out there and, you know, and do your best. And the problem is, is that I think everybody fails at the margins of their experience. We're like, well, this is how I was raised. And, like, that's a really interesting thing because you have to be analytical and smart enough to be like, okay, was how I raised ideal? Sure. Well, that's- and and am I smart enough to not perpetuate it? Because, you know, like, th- this is the one, and this is a, a disgusting topic, but, like, you know, kids that are abused sexually tend to be abused by people that were abused sexually. Mm-hmm. And that one, like, um, uh, like, as an individual, if that happened to you and you knew how it made you feel and altered the, your fucking consequences of your life and just, you know, yeah. dude, why would you put that on somebody else? Like, why would you extend it? Why wouldn't you have that behavior stop here? And when I realized it, I'm like, maybe most people can't separate themselves to look and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, the behavior that I was raised in or how I was raised might not have been ideal. And a lot of people are, uh, don't have the the wherewithal or have like taken, you know, to, to quote, Woodski. Have enough uh, alone time with their own mind and enough boredom to be able to look at this stuff, break it down into pieces and analyze it so that, like, I'm gonna continue to perpetuate what was good and I'm not, and I'm gonna throw away the bad and try to be a better version of myself.
2: But I guess my caution on that is different strokes for different folks and understanding the environments you can create. And I think what's unique about um, maybe our generation of parents, right, is how rampant. This I'm I'm gonna generalize in text and I were talking about this this morning this kind of like self help self help and leadership um, subject matter has become and like how popularized it's become and how much attention really smart people are putting into it so now as like a, a future parent I like I'm I'm not worried about and this is probably I am worried about it but my focus isn't necessarily about failing or the inability to do it. It's that I have a ton of resources like Julie Mm -hmm. and like Angela Duckworth and like Anders Ericsson. And we have all of this information where, man, you could really up your game in like all this stuff that we would use to be an amazing coach, I think has a a unique carryover, and I'll learn whether or not it's true, right? Uh, Carryover to parenting. But my dad Mm -hmm. never had any of this literature. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he ever thought, to read Vince Lombardi's book or autobiography? Um,
1: I'm going to raise my kid. I think parents have taken a dramatically greater interest in their kids within the last 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember, like, I I talked to my mom, and my mom was like, um... Like, you guys are so much more into not only being good individuals and good parents and, like, what are your kids doing than we ever were. My mom's like, honestly, like, you guys would get on your bikes, and I'd be like, no, they'll come back when they get back. Like, I joked that we were raised with, like, you know, like stray dogs almost, Uh, whereas now parents are so much more involved in this and this. And my mom, you know, I even asked my mom, and she's like, I didn't necessarily know what your guys' grades were until you came home and we opened the report cards. And I was like, well, I mean, did you call the teachers or any of that other stuff? She's like... No, there a problem. You would have told me, right? I'm like, oh shit, mm-hmm. like it just was um, dramatically different. And I wonder if like they're, you know, whether it's the helicopter parenting that they discuss in uh, Coddling of the American Mind, or if it's just the fact that um, you know the parents have not taught the children resilience. So then they fair they feel like I have to like hold their hand through this whole thing, you know, as because uh, you know I can't have my child fail, which I would actually prefer my children learn failure early than later in life like Mm -hmm. like we ran into it with uh with our intern where like he was you know 25 26 and had never failed at anything Mm -hmm. and i'm like dude you were in your mid-20s graduated from college before you ever felt that you failed or did bad at something but like like what's interesting like that's
2: Julie. maybe you can give us a little bit like maybe if let me know if i'm on like directionally accurate or not but like you know, like there's all sorts of literature within the coaching paradigm about the importance of failure and resiliency and overcoming losses that we like can intuitively map over outside of the coaching space. And I think that maybe, like this is, is there a generation of parents that are now exposed to all sorts of new information regarding childhood behavior and um, the do's and don'ts than let's say 20 years ago or 40 years ago?
4: They, I mean, I think there are more resources available um, from, you know, if you read The Nurture Effect, they'll talk about a number of programs that have been implemented to support, um, you know, new parents and, and parents during those early years, single mothers, there are specific programs, you know, just that are even tied to um, um, to the healthcare that, you know, um, women are getting when they're, you know, going through, going through the pregnancy process. Um, I can't remember what, what are the, the classes, the classes that they go through prior to Mm -hmm. the
2: prenatal type stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. So in talking to, to my best friend, she said, um, I asked her, I was like, what kind of resources are you getting exposed to? And they actually had some parenting classes where they were given information on, you know, recognizing and encouraging desire behaviors and how, you know, what to do when your child is acting out and that sort of thing um and you know my my best friend um doesn't have a background in behavior analysis so when i when she was describing um the resources that were available to her you know i think some of that is happening but it's not happening on a large enough scale Mm -hmm. um and also kind of the missing component is you know there are a lot of resources readily available for the observable behaviors what what i call our overt behavior but our covert behavior, which are thoughts, feelings, emotions, we don't have as many tools for that. Or you know, the folks who are most well versed in um, kind of tackling those issues, which I think really stems to this issue of resilience. Um, you know, those those resources that are left for certain professionals, and um, and they're not as widespread for for parents for coaches for teachers um but they're becoming so it's it's coming out now so i have um over the last um several years um have done a lot of study in the area of acceptance and commitment therapy and outside of the clinical setting we refer to it as acceptance and commitment training or act and the uh, um, act is sort of um it's, it's been called the third wave of behavioral therapy. So have you heard of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? I think so. Yeah, so um, so this would be kind of like the, the, the next step. So everything comes in waves, right? So behavior modification, behavioral therapy, what it was when it first started, um, and then cognitive behavioral therapy, and, um, and now acceptance and commitment therapy. And um, with acceptance and commitment therapy, we're trying to promote what we call psychological flexibility. Um, others have um, called it behavioral flexibility. So it's sort of like when one, one thing doesn't work for you, you know, you have, you can identify like what are options? What are other things that, can I, that I can do? So kind of that creative problem-solving behavior. Um, but really what psychological flexibility means is, you know, when I, um, you know, kind of notice these uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, emotions, can I like notice them? For what they are, and stay committed or engage in behaviors that are going to keep me moving toward what is important to me, um, instead of getting stuck and caught up in those thoughts, feelings, emotions that are uncomfortable, and engage in um, what we would call you know kind of avoidant behaviors, kind of these ineffective um, coping strategies. So, just as an example, you know you're an athlete. You get injured, right? And, um, and now you have to go through rehab. All your teammates are, you know, still out on the field, on the court, doing what they, you know, doing what you want to be doing. And you start to notice feelings of frustration, maybe some feelings of anxiety of, am I going to be able to return to my sport? Um, and, you know, instead of engaging in, you know, supportive teammate behaviors, you know, being out there cheering your teammates on, maybe you start to withdraw. Maybe you start to slack off on your rehab exercises. Um, so you're getting caught up in all that internal stuff. <laughs> and instead of engaging in behaviors that move you toward your ultimate goal of returning to sport, now you're engaging in some of these behaviors that are probably going to make it make that return to sport a little bit more difficult. Um, and, and so Um, So acceptance and commitment therapy really gives us um, a set of strategies and tools that we can use to deal with those internal thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, urges, um, more effectively. So basically, you know, allows you to do what you want to do in an effective manner um, without getting caught up. It's like um, I tell my students, I don't like public speaking. I was so nervous about coming and talking to you guys this morning. Um, but I've learned like now I have tools where I can like put anxiety in my pocket. Anxiety can be there with me, and I can still do things that are meaningful to me, that are important to me. And um, and so you know, that kind of leads into some other research that I'm doing right now using acceptance and commitment training um, as part of kind of a coaching program for injured athletes to help enhance the rehab. Um rehab process, um, so to speak, you know, I don't deal with the physical side of it, but I can help deal with the psychological side of return to sport.
3: Over over email, and I think this is a good time over email, you said you were working on a piece of self care during the covid mm-hmm. pandemic. So can you bring yep. up the, the tips that you're you're putting out there for people?
4: Yeah, so really, um, the piece that I was working on um, was really focused on remote working and remote learning. Um, so it was a piece that I was asked to, to do, um, you know, for the, for the university and, you know, some of the things, um, that I think are relevant to everybody is sort of this, all of a sudden I have a lack of structure, <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm home. I don't have my normal routines. I'm not going into the office or like now I'm you know, supposed to work and I'm supposed to homeschool my kids at the same time. Um, like how can I still remain productive? And you know, so one of the things in that instance, um, you know, that I recommend is you know trying to create some sense of structure, but still with flexibility, because we need to remain flexible during this time because things are changing on us every day. Um, but identify a few key anchors. So maybe your anchor is that every morning you're going to have your coffee and you're you know going to do some journaling, do some meditation, whatever it is. But you know that that's going to be the first thing that you do every morning. Um, and I say you know try to find an anchor for the beginning of the day. Ideally, somewhere in the middle of your day and at the end of your day. So having some sort of bedroom routine. Um, I know a colleague of mine who, you know, said like they're still trying to keep like the bedroom bedtime routine, quote unquote, normal for their kids right now. Um, You know, for me, it's, you know, midday, um, making sure that I get outside for a little bit of time, um, take the dog for a walk. Um, you know, other anchors could be weekly, maybe it's, you know, themed meal nights with your family or a movie night, um, you know, those types of things, but those anchors will help create some sense of a routine and some sense of normalcy. Um, and then, you know, kind of using what I said before, like engineering your environment to be more productive. So when I'm in work mode, I'm in my office, there's a note on the door. (laughs) There's a sign that says like, I'm in work mode, like don't interrupt, Um, This is not a time where you're welcome to just like pop in and say hi, because believe it or not, the fiance and the dog both do that to me. (laughs) So, um, you know, you know, maybe there's a way of um, minimizing distractions and interruptions. So shutting off the notifications on your phone that are coming in on social media, Um, maintaining those supportive connections. So um, my um, my colleagues um, on campus, like we'll get together for virtual like coffee breaks. Um, We also set up virtual kind of um, informal meetings with our graduate students, you know, to kind of mimic some of the things that we would normally do during the course of the semester. Um, I have friends who are organizing virtual happy hours, um, you know, and and family meetings and things like that. I I have friends who are doing game nights over Zoom. So it's amazing the types of things that we can do um, to stay connected with one another. Um, and then just taking breaks throughout the day, um, you know, really kind of checking in because this is where you know um, you can identify what are some of those triggers. Like maybe um, you know um, you just read an article in your Facebook feed or IG feed, and um, and it really and it was triggering for you, and now you find yourself being really distracted and unproductive. So checking in with yourself, identifying what those triggers are, so that you can better respond to them. Um, and, you know, or just taking a stretch break, because I don't know about you guys, like all the screen time that we're engaging in these days, um, you know, it, it um, creates, you know, eye issues, neck, um, shoulder issues, those sorts of things. Um, and, um, and then finally, another one was um, engaging in professional development. So um, this is big as far as professional self-care. You know, now we... You know, I say you don't have that time because I have a lot of friends who have a long commute. Um, I'm a lucky person. I have like five minute commute commute from uh, my house to campus. But for those with longer commutes, that's where they would listen to the That's where they would, you know, put on an audio book. And so they don't have those things that they normally were doing. Um, and so this is a great time. And I know for some of my colleagues who aren't able to continue to work right now. So they're doing all of their CEUs during this time. So those are, you know, kind of, um, you know, when we think about self-care, it's not just on the personal side, it's not just bubble baths and massages and those types of things, but it really is, you know, what are those things to, um, you know, care for ourselves on a professional level um, as well.
2: Nice. And um, so, so where do, do those fall in any particular spectrum of like, you talked about the three waves of kind of behavioral uh, mm-hmm. analysis, do they fall across all of them in certain buckets?
4: Um, I wouldn't say, um, you know, in in all of them, they're really kind of figuring out, like, how can you make those changes to your environment, um, you know, to support your overall um, well-being. And all of those, like, I look at self-care in and of itself. Um, You know, I like to think of it as a value. Um, Other people will just say it's a label for a collection of behaviors. And um, but when I think of it as if I value self-care, then I'm going to identify what are those specific things under that umbrella of self-care that are important to me. Mm -hmm. So it's important to me to work out. And right now I'm actually without my normal gym, just like so many other people. Um, We, you know, we're lucky to be part of kind of a private co-op gym, so we don't have an extensive home gym um, set up. We actually, um, are shipping some stuff from my fiance's from Pennsylvania and we're shipping some stuff that, that we had left in Pennsylvania, um, to Minnesota, knock on wood, it arrives today and we'll have barbells and bumpers. But, you know, I was trying to figure out how can I do some, do some exercise in my basement with the limited little stuff that I do have. And so I have a sturdy pole in the middle of my basement. I took a band, put it around that, put a broomstick, no, it was a mop stick unscrewed it from the mop, put it inside the band, set my bench, and I was doing, you know, seated rows in my basement. Yes, you know, this is a time to be creative. So, whenever I think about the things that I can't do, like I can't go to the gym and I can't do my normal workout, I think, how can I achieve the same outcome in a different way? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really great way for us to help kind of reinforce that creative behavior right now and that problem-solving behavior. Anytime you hear somebody say, oh, I'm so bummed, I can't do this. And it's like, well, what can you do and how can you do it maybe differently? Um, and that, that's one of the things I've even been encouraging my students um, to do because right before all of this happened, my students have put together these wonderful behavior change plans for a, tar- a behavior that they had targeted to work on for the rest of the semester and all of a sudden you know life changed and some of them don't have access to the resources that they were going to need um, before all this happened and so on the fly because i've taught my students kind of some of these strategies from um, acceptance and commitment training um, they're able to utilize that now in this time of uncertainty um, to really think about okay what are the things that are important to me and what are You know, what are the behaviors that I need to engage in, in order to keep moving toward those things that are important to me?
3: Anything else, Tex? Suppose any actionable takeaways. So importance of journal or journal writing or any anchors that you feel are great starter kit, things that people can begin to implement on their own today.
4: Um, you know, I think journaling is a really great way to help increase self awareness. So anything that you can do to increase self awareness, I think, is um, is going to be really helpful. Just so that you can even identify when you're starting to feel anxious, when you're starting um, to feel worried. Um, but you know, there are some really simple um, strategies. Um, they're called grounding strategies or grounding techniques um, that people can engage in. So. Um, One is really easy. Like you can do it sitting in your chair right now. Um, And it's really just engaging in your senses. So if you were to look around the room and ask yourself, like, what are five things that I can see right now? And then, you know, listen carefully and notice what are, you know, four or five things that I can hear right now. Um, And then think about, you know, what are Four or five things that I can feel right now. And it might be, you know, feeling the clothing that you're wearing or feeling the chair, you know, on your back. But really engaging those external senses. Um, and you know, you can do this sit, seated um, in the space that you're at. Or I really like to do it while I'm walking. So I go for what I call mindful walks, and I use that as an opportunity instead of like zoning out and putting in my earbuds and you know listening to music or something. Um, I use that as an opportunity to try to notice things in my neighborhood that I haven't noticed before Um, or, you know, um, you know, listen to the various sounds of, you know, what, what is the wind doing, what animals can I hear, Um, that sort of thing. Um, Simple mindful breathing is another one just to take a break, you know, and really focus on, you know, long inhales and exhales Um, and that you can, again, do anywhere Um, And really any activity you can engage in mindfully. So, you know, even while you're cooking, while you're showering, while you're brushing your teeth, like take those boring, monotonous activities that you just kind of do out of habit, and, um, and really try to engage in the moment um, with all of your senses while you're um, going through emotions, so to speak.
3: And sense of humor,
4: right? Yes.
2: Mm. (laughs)
0: Is yes. it important? So,
2: is, so, it's important. so what's the thought on? I'm thinking of all those kind of downtimes. I'm always thinking about I don't know things to do or like how I'm going to tackle something on the plate. So ultimately, you're saying black that out. Just focus on try to get right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Silo every like silo yourself there. And then what's what's the thought on that? Is that is that calming? Is it like a parasympathetic thing? Is there any biology to it or is it just uh, something to kind of like swing the pendulum the other way to create a little bit of balance?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think one of the things um, and this and this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy is um, we spend a lot of time ruminating about things that happened in the past and worrying about things that happen in the future. So we spend so much of our time or our mind spends so much of its time in the past or in the future and not enough time in the present moment. And so those techniques that I was sharing with you about really engaging your senses and being in the here and now, that's really what mindfulness Mm -hmm. is all about. Um, And there are are some really great um, apps right now that um, have a variety of free resources available. So like Headspace has um, particular programs, I guess within Headspace are free right now. Um, Calm is another app that has a lot of free resources. Insight Timer um, has a free library that it's put together. Um, and then one of my favorites um, is the Act Companion app. Um, and they're offering uh, free content right now too. Um, and I think you know um, those in particular um, have kind of been recommended by a lot of, lot of people who are well-respected and, um, and, and known in the field. So um, actually UC Berkeley's greater, greater Good Science Center website also has a lot of um, great resources for um, parents, students, um, and, and individuals as a whole. So um, yeah, I think, you know, just right now with everything that's going on, um, you know, in conversations that I have with students and conversations that I have with my friends and even with my parents, um, everybody's worried about like, what is going to, what are things going to look like in a month? What are things going to look like? Like I worry about like, what is higher education going to look like after all of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I spend too much time getting caught up in those thoughts, then I realize that now I've wasted my day and what I should be focused on is, you know, what can I do right here in this moment? Um, and also thinking about what do I want to be on the other side of this? Like, that's another key question. Like, who do you want to be on the other side of this pandemic? And what are the things that you can do right now, today, in this moment, um, that are going to help get you there?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we were just kind of talking to a buddy of ours. I do think it's important, not necessarily to ruminate on the unknowns, but I think you got to at least... Plan for the change in topography, right? Mm-hmm. Like imagining, like if you if you're imagine it as a hike, and you're like, well, okay, looks like it's getting pretty snowy up there. I better pack some snowshoes. Like you know what I mean? Are you
1: talking about the thirty days of tacos? Uh,
2: what I'm in, I don't. call
1: And this <laughs> ends. You just go thirty days of tacos.
2: Oh yeah, but but it can, it has to be constructive, right? So having yeah. the self awareness to know, like, is this thought is the thought I'm putting into this constructive? Is it like, I guess you said it earlier in the podcast, right? Being aware if it's pushing you along towards Mm -hmm. like some sort of constructive um, headspace, or is this distracting you from the constructive things you should be doing? Right.
4: Yeah. And and I think that's a lot of times what we find. So we have, we have behaviors that can move us toward things that are meaningful and important to us. And we have behaviors that can move us away from those things that are important to us. Right. mm -hmm. And so having that level of awareness, like you said, to notice, like, Oh, I'm thinking about the future, or I'm thinking about all you know, all the things that could happen. Um, and now, you know, what am I doing? Like as a result, am I, um, you know, learning new skills that are going to be helpful to me? Like for a lot of my faculty colleagues, um, we, we got you know, within two days, we're asked to move face-to-face classes to the online environment. Well, now thinking ahead, higher education might look different in the fall. Um, So what I could be doing right now, now that things have kind of settled, I've got my classes up and going again, but I can be continuing to develop the skills that I need to be an effective teacher if things are still going to be online in the fall, for example, um, versus sitting like just kind of like zoning out and giving up and feeling like, oh, well, I'm just going to go grab that big bag of Doritos or I'm going to go, you know, purchase, you know, 10 pounds of you know, meet or, you know, go hoard all the toilet paper and the paper towels. Um, like, am I gonna start engaging in those almost like fear-based responses or am I going to, you know, do something constructive in the time that I have? So there's there's definitely a difference in being prepared for what lies ahead um, and, and thinking ahead about those things because we need to be doing that, right? Um, versus getting stuck on the what-ifs and what might happen and letting it kind of um, uh, almost almost where we just freeze, and we're like a deer caught in a headlight. And then we but don't isn't know that what most
1: people go. like? Aren't most people reactive? I mean, it yes. um, like, like as you were going through that deal, I kept thinking of like the old. Um, I mean, it's the. old, uh, I thought the Dalai Lama said it that if you live in the past, you're depressed. If you live in the in the future, <laughs> you're anxious. Uh, yep. If you live in the here, if you live in the present, then you're a happy individual. Yes. Um, but I think most people's decision-making is fear-based very few people are analytical like uh, the whole toilet paper thing was hilarious because um, a bunch of the toilet paper in Japan is produced in China so when this whole thing hit the Japanese went out and they cleared out and they bought all the toilet paper because they were nervous that they weren't going to be able to import it they showed pictures of that here and people ran out and bought all the toilet paper not realizing it's in Japan And like, Mm -hmm. like I I realized most people aren't necessarily looking at this thing analytical. Everything is like this fear reactive base. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, it's, um, like, like you said, I I wonder if the internet or, or if, you know, the fact that the whole world is accessed within the palm of our hand is, is Mm -hmm. almost removing people's ability to think things through. And like, let's look at this analytical or less like as a rational, non-crazy person, uh, which I think we're kind of losing.
4: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that we're really reactive and we're reactive on like autopilot. So it really is and and, and that's good, right? So, you know, when we get anxious and our body goes into flare or fight, it does that for a reason. And in a lot of like in a lot of ways, we should be thankful that our our mind, you know, go, you know, does that for us because it's probably saved us from, you know, if you're walking um, you know, I live in Duluth Minnesota and we still have snow on the ground up here. Um, there were still icy patches on the sidewalk when I walked the dog this morning. Um, I see this you know see the ice on the sidewalk well, you know now I can move around it you know like that part of our mind is helpful in helping us to avoid some really negative consequences. Um, so it works really good for those types of things but it doesn't work very good um, to you know to engage in that problem- solving mind um, doesn't really work. When it comes to thoughts, feelings, and emotions that are uncomfortable. So we start to avoid those things. And now we're giving more of our our attention to those uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And it's almost like, have you ever played that game of paddleball? Do you remember paddleball? Paddleball, paddleball. Like um, it's the wooden paddle that has the ball attached with the string. yeah, Yeah, yeah. 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 So, you know, if you think about like the paddle as being your mind and the ball being an uncomfortable thought, like a thought of I'm not enough. All right. So you bat it. And like the whole thing with paddle balls, you need to like bat it harder and harder and harder, right? Like that's a lot of effort to like bat away that ball. And so if I'm doing that with my thought, now I'm putting all that energy and effort into getting that ball to go further and further and further. Um, And, you know, when, when we think about it, like, in that sense, like, do you want to give all your time, attention, and effort to getting rid of those uncomfortable thoughts? Or do you want to notice that they're there, acknowledge them, say like, hey, there's worry showing up again, but pause and say, what can I do in this moment to move toward what's important to me? Um, And so that's really, you know, um, it it really is self-awareness. Like the reason that we're so reactionary is because it's just it's, it's this automatic um, behavior that we engage in. Um, and a lot of, you know, an, an unfortunately, um, a lot of the ineffective coping strategies that we engage in, like let's say that I'm having a really bad day. So I'm like, ah, I'm gonna go eat a tub of ice cream. Well, in that moment while I'm eating that ice cream, I'm like, this tastes great. And I'm not thinking about that uncomfortable thought. Like maybe it was that, you know, I, my boss yelled at me earlier at work today. I'm not thinking about that when i'm in the moment eating my ice cream i'm thinking about how great this ice cream tastes but the fact that my boss yelled at me is still there it's not like i got rid of it right um and so you know now i just engaged in a behavior that really like now i'm gonna feel like crap when i go to do my workout later um so it didn't move me toward what's important to me um, it was in the short term though it was effective because it allowed me to kind of escape for a short period of time, from that uncomfortable, you know, thought that I was having um, or experiencing, mm-hmm. and so a lot, lot of times those behaviors that we engage in, sort of on autopilot, um, you know, have short-term positive results because, like I mentioned to you, if we're engaging in behavior, it's because either we're getting something we want or we're avoiding something that we don't want, and I would venture to guess that most people really don't want to experience uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, emotions, or feelings of distress or feelings of worry. Um, and, you know, so we just need to be, we need to learn those those skills and the, you know, and we have, we have tools um, to more effectively respond to those internal experiences um, that can get us stuck. Um, but we just need to get them out there. And we need, you know, to, you know, have helped people put them into practice because um, once you start putting it into practice um, it you know it becomes more habitual um, and you know now um, I know it, it'll probably sound silly but I'll be going throughout my day and I'll be like oh I noticed that i'm having the thought that whatever that thought is mm-hmm. um but that simple technique of putting the phrase i notice that i'm having the thought that, I'm frustrated is different than I am frustrated so it puts a distance between you and that thought that you're having and now you've created that level of awareness of noticing the thoughts and you can say all right well I noticed that I'm that I'm frustrated um, or I notice that I'm feeling lazy that doesn't mean that I'm lazy that's different than saying I am a lazy you know whatever um, so those are some of the strategies that we can teach other people to recognize when those things are showing up for them and help them you know, to respond effectively and more proactively instead of in that reactive um, nature that will uh, you know, take them away from what they really feel is important. Sweet. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah,
3: <laughs> power of words. And we can tie it back to fixing recruiting. So if they're either getting or avoiding, if we're up front and we don't want to manipulate them into... to use that word again, John? To um, coming to our school, because they will get playing time, but up front of them is the other five-star recruits. If we're up front in the potential that they possess to be a leader or contribute to our team, then it puts them in a position to decide a behavior where they're getting an opportunity to compete, play, or work hard for the chance to X.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Julie where can people go to find some of these tools I mean is it like something that you're pushing out on social are there is there any sites or journals that you you work with if someone's interested in learning more
4: yeah so actually um, right now uh, Russ Harris uh, developed a tool called face COVID F-A-C-E COVID um, and if you just Google that, you'll you'll come up with it. They, you know, he first just kind of came out with this written analogy, but now there's a whole video on on YouTube. Um, so that's a really great tool. Um, Russ Harris um, is really well known in the acceptance and um, commitment therapy um, arena. Um, he has a book called The Happiness Trap, another one that I would highly recommend. Um, Steve Hayes is another um, big name in the area of acceptance and commitment therapy and acceptance and commitment training. If you guys could get him on, um, you'd have a wonderful conversation with Steve. Um, He has a book out right now called a liberate, a liberated mind. Um, And that one um, would be another good resource. Um, Again, earlier I mentioned some of those uh, mindfulness apps. Um, I, the piece that I wrote um, is available. um, I think I have it linked right now on my IG Um, So I do try to put um, those relevant resources out on my um, IG account. You can find that at Julie Sloviak PhD Um, And I can also send you um, that link I can also send you links to some of the other ones that I talked about like UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center website Um, New Harbinger um, is a publisher and they've published a lot of self-help books and workbooks um, that are you know kind of spanned Span a lot of different disciplines within psychology, um, but they have made a lot of their resources uh, freely available right now um, as well.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, this was super, yeah. super yeah. informative, super timely, very enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, get on it. Face COVID among a plethora of other resources. Thank you, Julie, so much for for shedding light on all this stuff. And man, it's a pretty interesting like behavior change is an interesting thing, and it doesn't seem easy. I guess always moving, constantly evolving. So uh, kudos to you and and your colleagues for continuing to hammer this thing.
4: Thank you. Now, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you guys uh, this this morning, this afternoon, and. Um, you know, if there are, if there's anything else that I can do, any resources I can provide, um, please let me know. Um, and you know, you, you have my email, um, and for listeners, um, you can email me at injeulecoaching at gmail.com. It's I N J E W E L coaching at G at gmail.com. Um, and I'm happy to forward out resources to whoever would like them.
3: Cool. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah, you. we'll we'll have to touch base once your your findings and research are complete. Complete. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And
2: thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. Drive on, drive on, drive on. That's drive Echo. On. We'll do an AM and an on. on that.
1: Kick the yes. right before the hammer thank you, Julie. Bye. So sure thank you.
0: Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Julie Slowiak has quite the online presence. You can find her on Instagram, Julie Slowiak, PhD. She's also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and she has her own academic website if you just Google her name. Until next time, bye!